Hey everybody, Magnus here. You know, when I puff on my electronic cigarette, what I exhale is water vapor. Water vapor. You're not allergic to water vapor. Nobody is. Nobody ever has been. Nobody ever will be. Nobody. Ever. Because of that, it makes no sense to ban e-cigs from public places. There's no good reason to do that. There are tons of idiotic and retarded reasons, and I've heard most of them, but there's no good reason to do it. You see, I cherish very few things in life, but nicotine's one of them. And having that taken away by a bunch of crybaby hypochondriacs makes for an angry Magnus. So, my advice is, don't be an idiot. Don't be a retard. And for crying out loud, don't ban e-cigs from public places. This is your public service announcement by Magnus. your attention, please! This is a piece of art. His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. No! Dr. Doom wears body armor to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. to Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. I'm your host, Magnus, and around here I talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. But, every seventh episode, I put all that bullshit on hold to talk about the DC Paradox Press line of big books in a series that I've come to call The Big Big Book Report. Report. And as always, here to help me out with the discussion is former Eisner Award nominee, Mr. Chris Honeywell. Hello. How can you be a former nominee? Aren't I a nominee forever? Okay, well, all right, fair enough, fair enough. I just thought that... Well, just in case someone thought that you got nominated for it this year or something. No, no. (laughs) Okay. It's been a slow year in the the awards area. All right, well, fair enough. I I am, too. I haven't gotten uh, my Congressional Medal of Honor yet. I'm not... Backstory there, but... I've only gotten 15 major awards this year. Wow, you're off to a good start. That's um, that's not for me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well then, what is normal? Well, I should be up to. I should have at least twice that. <laughs> I don't know. I got. I got sick last week. Oh, that slows you down. All right. Flew last week. Yeah. Well, for those who don't know, not only is Chris the co-host of the Golden Headset nominee podcast, Two True Freaks, but he's also this show's co-benefactor. 
as it's his podcast network of which I recently became a member of which recently I joined of which recently which I recently which in question per se of which so there you go hang on I'm just checking all that yep okay it all lines up (laughs) today's entry in the series that I've come to call the big book report is a book called the big book of losers written by Paul Kirchner Nancy A. Collins and Erwin Yeah, I don't really know how to pronounce that. So, as to the artists, like always, there are way too many for me to mention all of them. But some of the more notable artists, at least that I saw, are Frank Quitely, freaking Ty Templeton, Lee Motor. Is this, is it, it's Val Semikes, Semikes? Samex, Samix. Yeah, I've never known how exactly how that was um, supposed to be pronounced. Right. Well, me either. But uh, whatever the guy's name is, he's in here. Rick Geary, Marshall Rogers, Dick Giordano, Joe Orlando, Charlie Adler, Kieran Dwyer, Joe Staten, Ed Hannigan, Steve Leoloa, and basically I met a fuck ton of others. And as far as sheer number of pretty well-known artists goes, Big Book of Losers could have more than any other book that Chris mm-hmm. and I have talked about so far. I mean, would you agree with that? Or Yeah, it's got Sergio Aragonez in it. A lot of ones that are just sort of, um, you know, very, very, very apparent styles when you see them. You know, there's no mistaking Sergio Aragonez in, in this no, there's so. not. And, well, and, you know, and that's the thing. I actually kind of touched on something I wanted to bring up. Um, one of the things that I just kind of like about the big book series in general, but really this one in particular, there's a huge variety of styles. It's not just that, you know, there's a bunch of different people who, who drew this. They just kind of banged the work out some weekend. There's There was a conscious effort made to bring across – uh, a variety of uh, of styles, and so you've got some fairly cartoony art, some more illustrative type of art, and like I say, it's just a bunch of different styles, and I like this because it diversifies the material and the presentation. Now, my question for you is, did you notice that there were any underground comics artists? And Well, I guess apart from Sergio Aragones, if he counts as an underground artist, uh, were there any other ones? Not any really huge ones that I... That I, uh, Gahan Wilson, mm-hmm. and I think he's been in pretty much um, all of these. I'm trying to remember the name of the the guy's name, but um, he's British, I believe, and actually he's one of my what his will be one of my sort of runner up stories. But uh, he did the Ulrich von Lichtenstein one, and um, he's I. I think it's the same guy who did Cartoon History of the Universe, if you've ever seen those. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he was, the you know, when, you know, his art style is very familiar. Also, he also put like little, puts little eyeballs in every one of his O's, sort of like a, a teenage girl. So oh, that, that, I can't, that's always a dead giveaway. <laughs> well, uh, the basic pitch of the book is, yeah, it's straightforward enough. Some people just have really bad luck or poor timing, abject lack of talent, shitty judgment, very low IQ, or any number of other problems that 
basically keep them from getting ahead, from living the high life. And so the Big Book of Losers is kind of an ode to people who are an outright fucking failure. And it's like the motivational poster says, if at first you don't succeed, maybe you just suck. Or my other favorite, it could be that the purpose of your life is to serve as a cautionary tale to others. What say you, Chris? This is a big this could be the big book of cautionary tales in some ways. <laughs> it would have left out a few of the things like the patents and stuff, but that's basically this is basically sort of a handbook of what not to do. Um sometimes though it's also just sort of a, a sad story of someone who's either had bad luck or is just ti- their timing was wrong or or they had good ideas. Uh, there's a few people in here, and I think they sort of soft-pedaled it. Like um, the guy who was the king of the country swing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, by the end, you know, he's stomping his wife to death and stuff. But um, I got the feeling that probably he was probably a great musician, but just a humongous asshole. <laughs> so, you know, that's why his life probably didn't go, you know, he didn't succeed too well or like frankie lyman and the teenagers you know right oh right right he just sort of self-destructed but um well you know some of those stories just feel like miley cyrus 10 years later you know mm -hmm. like i've i've got nothing against her other than the fact that i think she's kind of an annoying media personality but She's cruising for a bruising, dude. I mean, we know where, yeah, we know where that narrative goes. Ten years down, she's following a a pop star narrative that everybody knows doesn't end well. Right, and you know, it's it's just it's kind of sad to think if you think about like all of the different potential outcomes for her story. The happiest ending that she can probably hope for is Ike Turner. <laughs> <laughs> Because if you think about what the alternatives are, I mean, like the Amy Winehouse model or the Britney Spears model where your parents basically have to take over everything and become your conservator, you know, things like that. Ike Turner all of a sudden doesn't look like all that bad an alternative, you know? <laughs> Tina Turner is at least still alive. Well, Britney Spears is still alive, I, I suppose, as of this recording. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. It's an important disclaimer. You know, who knows what tomorrow will bring. <laughs> But, well, and you know, and that and that was sort of the thing. Um, I remember that there was a point. Um, I only found out about this like basically right as the sh- the show ended. But there was a point when Anna Nicole Smith had her own reality show. Mm-hmm. And I only found out about it like I want to say that it was the run up to what would become the series finale. But really, it was supposed to be just the season finale. And then I th- swear to think it was something like six or. Six months later, something like that. Eight months later, she was just, she's fucking dead, really is what it came down to. And I wasn't so much, like the surprising part of those two facts, the reason I bring it up, the the part that surprised me was that she had her own show. The way that she went out really wasn't that big a shock. Hate to say it, you know. Well, if you watched her show, too, and it didn't really take much reading between the line to see what was going on, that she was like heavily drugged and that there was just sort of this battle around her to see who could manipulate 
hurt into whatever's going on that was going to bring more money or attention to those people. And you just know that just never, it never, never, never ends well, especially when you couple it with Anna Nicole Smith, who did, didn't seem even undrugged and at her peak to be the most, how, how should I put it nicely, savvy person <laughs> or, you know, the most brilliant individual. You know, she seemed easily manipulated. And uh, so she's not going to pull like, you know, like Madonna, someone like Madonna has sort of control over her life you know she has a, a intelligence and a plan and everything like that whereas I think Anna Nicole Smith was just being sort of dragged through it and pilled up and and that that show was hard to watch without feeling like you had to take five hours shower afterwards and just scrub and scrub and it would never come off oh geez is that bad wow <laughs> Well, it was just like it was looking into it was looking in at somebody's downfall, basically somebody going down, going downhill with no nobody. You know, I mean, they're filming a show about it. So it's not like anybody's looking to head it really headed off at the pass, you know, right. And really do what has to be done, which would be get these people the hell out of the limelight for as long as possible or into rehab, maybe. Both, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but then now you put them into rehab and they're just going on to a different reality show. So you you can never get out of that spotlight, and that's what drives. It's 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 insane. It's a sad sad fucking state of affairs, dude. So well, it is. But then when you read these stories in here, and this is you know all pretty much pre-internet, pre-modern communication stories, you find out. Yeah, people still did really good at uh, destroying themselves really quickly back in the old days, too, without the whole media um, that we have now to do it. You know, we have everything for you. I mean, you could, Anna Nicole Smith was old school with a TV show. You could destroy yourself in with two really horrible Twitter posts if you really tried. <laughs> right. These days, you know. Yeah, and some people have recently actually. I'm sure. I'm not oh, even sure gonna repeat what that lady said about going to Africa, but you know what I'm talking about, right? I have no idea what you're talking about, but I'm sure it was awful. <laughs> oh, okay, well, um, in that case, I guess I will repeat it. Basically, some <laughs> flack for some company. I don't. I forget what, but uh, she was basically she's the PR lady, right? She's like the front lady, mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know. And um, oh, this is yeah. Yeah, uh -oh. why you may. You would think of all people she would know better. I would have. But what she put what she wrote on uh, Twitter, I don't think this is an exact quote, but it's not it's not verbatim, but it's not that far off. She said, and I want to triple underline this. She said that. Right. Yes. Okay. Agnes I think did I did not start... say this. Uh, Chris Honeywell did not say this. This PR lady said this, all right? So save your hate mail for her. But what she said, and I quote as best I can was going to Africa. Hope I don't get AIDS. <laughs> Just kidding, I'm white. Oh, yes. No, no, I remember that. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, and uh, needless to say, people kind of wanted to know what she meant by that. And so she got on the plane, or actually she posted that shit, and immediately got on the plane, flew to Africa. By the time her plane touched down, she was unemployed. Mm -hmm. She was fired, yeah, yeah. I'm sure. And um, 
understand, this is somebody who you would think is fairly media savvy. She's got some understanding of the fact, you know, how many eyes are possibly on you. And you really need to watch what you say, especially if you have any kind of press attention, you know, with what you write online and stuff. You would think that of all people, she doesn't need to be told. Well, fucking, I guess she needed she needed to be told because nobody told her, and so, you know, and and it's kind of funny that she would actually be a I don't know her name, but she'd actually be a very good candidate for this book, <laughs> if uh, it were to come out next year, you know. So, mm-hmm. but according to Mike's Amazing World of DC, which you can find at dcindexes.com, the Big Book of Losers was originally released on January the third, nineteen ninety seven. At a cover price of fourteen ninety five, and I gotta admit that it feels kind of weird to say that I loved this book because it's really just a shitload of stories about people who completely failed at life or death in some cases. But that's <laughs> yeah. that's yeah. I mean that's where we are. So what Chris and I agreed to was. We'd each pick out three stories that really stood out from the rest and then talk about those. But it's kind of like all the other big books. This sucker is nearly 200 pages long. There's no way to cover everything in here. So the best way to go is just pick three of them and talk about those. Now, since I went first last time, Chris can go first this time, and so... You're up. What, which All right. did you pick? All right. Well, the first one I got here is Joe Meeks' Musical Rocket Science. And Joe Meeks was basically, I would say he was kind of like Phil Spector before Phil Spector in a way. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying he had the talent of Phil Spector, but it. I love these kind of like bizarre off-geniuses. He was... He became a sound engineer for a lot of bands and, you know, you could tell he wanted to be sort of a hit maker and also have his own sound. So he, he, he had all these, and in those days, recording technology was basically in the stone age, but he had a lot of, you know, really weird ideas about how to mix stuff and how to record stuff. So he made a lot of quirky, unsuccessful recordings and uh, this is another uh, example of someone who probably was kind of an asshole. Yeah. It sounds like he was, uh, like, probably, you know, certifiably insane on top of all of this. You know, he would pull guns on, on drummers and throw things at people and berate them. Mm-hmm. But at, at some point, he actually wrote and produced a, a number one hit song. And uh, sort of being his big cash cow and um basically didn't get any of the money from it sued them and 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 lost and you know so probably i mean i think he killed himself yeah he basically um blew his head off and uh right before the uh, copyright claim was actually found again in his favor which seems to be a running theme for a, a, any of the loser people who end up killing themselves. Yeah. Usually it ends up if they just waited 10 or 15 minutes, they would have been rich or something too on top of it. But um, the, um, 
I wish I didn't try to do a little research on this and tried to find some actual songs mixed by Joe Meeks. I figured it would be a um, a slam dunk with even with just YouTube, and I couldn't find any of them. So I, I'm very curious to see how these record. I'm I gotta imagine i should go to ebay and see what the records go for i gotta imagine they're probably really collectible um just because of the backstory on them and there's probably not an awful lot of them that have made it to now but i'm very curious to hear what the joe meeks sound was it was probably horrible it was probably you know he was working with equipment that was less than what we have right now you know, than what we're recording with, I'm sure. Oh, right. Well, and one of the things that stood out to me when I was reading this story was his brushes, I guess you could call it like, it's a near near miss when it comes to success. Oh, yeah. I mean, he, he worked with people like Mitch Mitchell, Tom Jones, and these people were not, no, I'm, what? Rod Stewart. Oh, yeah. And basically, we're talking about people who are not nobodies in the 50s and 60s music scene. And to come that close and constantly, you know, miss out. I mean, honestly, you know why he missed out was because he rejected most of them. You know, that's that's the thing. He's the guy who like said, "Ah, you're a good band, but get rid of Rod Stewart, you know, or, um, (laughs) you know, saw David Bowie and just like, oh, what is this mess? You know, leave me alone. So, yeah, (laughs) I mean, in his own context and world and the Joe Meek sound and stuff, maybe those guys didn't fit in. But, yeah, that would have been a really good opportunity. Then again, maybe those guys would have been totally discouraged and gone nowhere if if they'd ended up, you know, with him as their management. Well, yeah, well, who could blame them, you know, getting shotguns in your face, right? So... That seems to be a, another common thing in crazy. You know, Phil Spector used to pull guns on people. Well, I mean, famously, he's, you know, eventually shot someone dead. But he'd been pulling guns on people since the 60s and 70s. Well, that, kind of, well, that kind of makes me wonder, you know. Um, basically, it seems like there was a point, and damned if I could tell you when it happened, right? But there was a point when to be... A record producer at a certain point in time meant not just engineering the studio and getting the sound together and all that stuff. It was, I don't want to go so far as to call it management, but you almost had some sort of oversight or approval of Mm -hmm. who would be signed to record deals and stuff. And it just feels like there came a point when the record producers just sort of lost that power, right? So. You know, if you've got a, a band that you've already signed with, I don't know, Sony Sony Music or something like that, and you need a producer, maybe you give somebody like Flood a call, right? Mm-hmm. But Flood has really no control over whether you get a record deal or not. He's just there to do his his best to make sure that your record sounds as good as it can. Right. He comes into the studio and engineers it and puts in his two cents and, and does that. Yeah. And I, I'm sure that was done... For a reason, I'm. Mean, there's still producers that sort. Of, well, they're, they're, you know, you, the, when you see that old school Colonel Tom Parker, Sven Gali, mm-hmm. 
like thing these days. It seems to be mostly with the female pop stars. I mean, the example in the last couple decades was uh, Celine Dion. Oh, gee, that was just was a the, creepy fucking story to begin with. Well, that's a, it's a very typical story where you have the manager who's you know picking out the songs for her to sing and managing her career from a very young age and you know 30 or 40 years older than her and then eventually ends up marrying her and um and you know why he's marrying her he wants the money 50 percent right the 50 eddie half eddie half so (laughs) and and he's had he's been in her head since she was 14 or whatever you know it happens quite a bit (laughs) it's a business it's a business move but that seems to happen with and sometimes it goes the other way, like, um, say, Ozzy. <laughs> that one ah, I guess I'm not too familiar with. Well, his, I mean, his his wife is his business manager. Hey, right, 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 right. No, that I did not know. I thought that was just his wife. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Well, he needs somebody handling his shit for him because oh, yeah. he, he couldn't be trusted with it himself. I wasn't – hold on, wait. Ozzy, he was – was he the one that, like, snorted ants? One time? He's, yeah, he's done a lot of things. <laughs> well, everyone knows about him pissing on the Alamo, and I still don't think he's allowed to play here in Texas anymore as a result of it. But I swear to think, there, it was like VH1 behind the It was something. And he just basically snorted ants. Like ants, like the kind that bite you and stuff. They stink. Yeah. He snorted yeah. them. Yeah. Ants. Yeah. Oh, there's... There, there are... I'm trying to remember the name of the... Um, the documentary it's uh i think it's the um decline the rise and fall of western civilization mm-hmm. or there's several there's several, there's a punk rock one there's the metal years and and ozzy gets a long interview in the metal years and and somewhere i've seen like the full interview that they took all the cuts out for the movie and it's just story after story after story. You know, I mean, um, he bit the doves off. The, the, that's a famous story. He bit the. He was supposed to release a couple doves in the office of these record producers that they were selling the new song to, and he just had the inspiration to like bite their heads off Jeez. <laughs> instead. He's on a lot of dr- lot of drugs, and I'm sure everybody was egging him on. And he's brain damaged, but he's not as off as it would seem, you know, as he gets edited on TV. He's he's not as daffy as I know lots of people like Ozzy. And as they get to Ozzy's age, I think they think I'm going to act a lot dafter and dotterier than I already am because it lo- it's it's the misunderestimated factor. You know, people start setting the bar lower and. And you can relax a little bit. Right. <laughs> People start doing stuff for you. <laughs> Whatever floats your boat, I guess. Uh, wow. But I mean, the, in the, when they had their reality show, there were long parts where, you know, she's like setting up the next tour and he doesn't want to do it. And she's just like, you know, oh, no, <laughs> you're going on tour. <laughs> <laughs> so... Yeah, there's a a lot of that going on, but yeah, um, uh, do you have anything else on Joe Meeks? I'm ready to go on to. 
No, that was basically it. Just the uh, Celine Dion angle was that was just too good to pass by. But also, yeah, that that was basically it. Oh, uh, she horrifies me. Side note, <laughs> she has a weird praying mantis head. Yeah, it's me out, man. Yeah, well, that yeah, I don't think we're alone on that one. But uh, you know what they say: if you can't say something nice, just shut the fuck up, right? So. No, if you can't say something nice, get a microphone and start a podcast. <laughs> yeah, that's well, that's true. That's true. <laughs> All right, um, my number number two is Carrie the musical, one that I put in the sort of um, bad timing um, area because I think Carrie the musical might have worked in the last ten years. But the time period that they did it, they had some success with with musical, you know, like um, Les Miserables was a big one at that time and stuff. But not like today where it's almost like any movie can translate into a musical and people are, are get pretty excited about it. Right. I would have personally loved to have seen Carrie. I, I mean, I'd love to see the unsuccessful shows of Carrie the Musical. It must have been... It must have been great. Um, but um, sort of glad, <laughs> sort of glad it, 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 it didn't start that trend earlier. I would have, I would have been, um, it, it would have been really disappointing if Stephen B- King became the next um, Mel Brooks and just started translating every movie to, onto <laughs> the, the stage. Well, I've been, I, you know, I gotta tell you, I've been curious about Carrie the Musical ever since I saw the movie for the first time. I guess it was about 15 years ago now, but basically brought um, the DVD home because I'd never seen the movie before, right? Brought it home and, you know, I mean, you know, it's a pretty good movie, I guess. And checked out some of the uh, DVD extras and stuff. And some of them were kind of obvious and, you know, like deleted scenes and that kind of stupid stuff. But they had a, a documentary on there, one and and one part of it. And they and they said up front, we can't show you anything. Apparently, there is footage of this stuff. We oh can't show God. you anything. But this thing was basically a disaster. And then they just do nothing but talk the thing down. I think that whole bit probably lasts like 10 minutes or something like that. And it's just literally nothing but people ripping the shit out of it, right? But they can't show you anything. I mean, I think the most that they can show is maybe just a couple of photographs and stuff. Mm. From which we're supposed to extrapolate what the stage show might have been like, right? But I was sitting here watching this stuff. And, you know, I've never really been one for... uh, camp type of entertainment or the so bad it's good kind of thing but part of me kind of would have wanted to see that you know uh if you have that many people talking smack about how terrible it is i kind of think it maybe it's it's sort of like the hall the star wars holiday special effect kicks into where have you seen the star wars holiday special most of it i ended up i i it got to the it's painful well and it, it really is but I, I don't know. It's just, it's one of those things where I, I kind of want to go easy on it because part of me thinks I know I couldn't do a better job if I had to. But then I realize, well, it's not my job. They get paid millions of dollars, so why wasn't it better? <laughs> and I don't know. But part of me kind of would kind of want to see what Carrie the Musical was like, you know. And anyway, I have a feeling it wasn't that bad. I have a feeling it would 
from the from the product from the way they talk about the huge overblown production it sort of sounds like what they do today with adaptations so people like one of the thing i i um read the book uh wicked that was sort of the retelling of the wicked witch of the west story from her point of view mm-hmm. <clears throat> and the book is very dense and dark it's a very moody book and it's a, like about a more realistic Oz and the and the politics of it, and how Glinda's kind of a jerk, and um, and that got made into a musical, and it's full of frothy song and dance numbers and stuff like that. I mean, it's a dark story, and it's was made into a feel-good musical, and I have a feeling that's not what they did with Carrie. But the but Wicked, I I would dare say, was more of a success as a as a musical than it was even as a book, and uh, I think I I I don't think it would be that bad. I would I would be interested to see it. I was I I really liked the book Carrie. That was the first Stephen King book I ever got to read, and um, that wasn't just short stories. And I liked the movie. I thought the movie is a good. It's it's good. It's like the first movie where Brian De Palma really sort of started feeling his style, you know, developing what was going to be his solid style for the next twenty years. Right. Um, but I've seen good chunks. Of, I haven't seen the latest remake of Carrie, but I've seen there. Were, I think there was another one in the movies, and there was one for made for TV. And I've seen big chunks of them and then just stopped watching them because I was like, ah, I'm getting nothing new from this and it's not as good as, as you, you know, it was just not even worth pursuing. So it's weird. So maybe Carrie as a concept has sort of as the book and as that first movie has sort of, that was sort of the peak of it because it doesn't seem there's been any success with any attempt to do it again or bring it back or anything since then well and arguably well actually i don't even think i, I the, the point the, what i was about to say was that you know i can't really think of any successful movies based upon oz related stuff since basically the wizard of oz the classic the one everybody remembers mm-hmm. except that's not actually true i think there was Oz the Great and Powerful, and I, from what I understand, that actually made some pretty decent money. But I always kind of thought that Carrie, as a movie, the book I couldn't tell you about, I never read it, but the movie, there was just something about that story that, that it just kind of captured the flavor of that time. Mm-hmm. And I, I could be wrong, but I think the, the, the De Palma Carrie, I think that was pre-exorcist and i think that basically america had a different standard for sort of horror back then and you know between things like the exorcist and then later on other horror movies like halloween and whatnot carrie was more plot it was a more plausible horror horror story people were this was a big time for um and later and i think it was de palma who did the fury not just before not long after carrie Mm-hmm. which was another telekinetic you know a couple te- telekinetic teens on the run story basically so tele and scanners 
was was coming out and stuff like that. So I think maybe in even The Exorcist sort of is a more plausible modern horse. You know, I'm, my aunt wore a crucifix for years after seeing The Exorcist. It freaked her out so bad. Mm, who can blame her? Um, because it seemed somewhat more plausible than Frankenstein or uh, vampires or something like that. So I think Carrie was a story that people think, well, this could actually you know somewhat plausibly happen this could there, you know this could be something that has a scientific explanation there was a lot of a lot of books about psychic phenomena and kirlian photography and stuff in 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 the early 70s early to late 70s really that whole decade mm-hmm. was full of stuff like that so i think carrie was perfect at that time and the book is ahead of its time because it's one of those books that a lot of them came after Carrie where it's not quite a straightforward narrative. There's there's Stephen King narrative of Carrie's story, but there's also a lot of it is told through um, news reports and, and newspaper articles and stuff like that that are looking back on the carnage. So there's a lot of flash forwards and flashbacks and it's sort of told out of out of sequence until it peaks at the end. Um, since we're talking about uh, so much about Carrie, did you ever see the sequel? Not understand what I say. Sequel, not any of the remakes, but the sequel to Carrie. I've seen parts of it. I, that was another one that I was, you know, watched a little bit, and I was just not feeling it. You know what I mean? Right. Well, the only reason I mentioned it was because obviously it's sort of like a Carrie remix, and I think what you mm-hmm. end up finding is that the and her name's not Carrie, but the Carrie in that movie has some sort of familial relation to Carrie White, Sissy Spacek. Okay. And the other connection was Amy Irving, and I can't say that Amy Irving is a particularly like really attractive woman or anything like that. But at the same time, there's something about that voice of hers, dude. I could just listen to that mm-hmm. all day. And so she's in it. And I thought, well, it's not like I have to buy the damn thing. I could just, you know, rent it. I basically was hanging out around. Um, uh, and look, as a defense, I can only say it was the folly of youth, right? Why do you want to see this movie? I was 20. Okay. I didn't know any better. You don't have to justify anything to me, man. It's we're in a safe place here. <laughs> All right. And I, we'd seen the first Carrie. Just I want to say it was like the weekend before that, and so hanging around, she said, "You know, you want to rent Carrie too, right?" Which it's one of those movies that with a reputation that sort of precedes it. It basically the I remember the reviews on that thing were just absolutely just fucking toxic. And I don't think it was very successful at all. It didn't seem to really help anybody's career. It just It's one of those movies that I honestly... It's one of those things that you, you look at... Even after it's over, you sat there and you watch it and you're just like, why? Why does this exist, you know? But uh, I don't know. At, at the same time, it wasn't terrible. It's not worth... I wouldn't say go out there and get it right now, but eh, if it's on TV, right. it's not it's terrible. It's probably sitting on YouTube or Netflix, probably. Probably. So, uh, that's basically what I had for a carry, though. All right, well, we'll move on to my number one, 
which was kind of ruined one of your um, your um, runners up. But we can just throw your all your runners up stuff into into this one if you'd like, and that's new Coke. <laughs> just I picked it because this for the same reason that you picked it as uh, as one of your alternate picks is that it was just a touchstone, not just in advertising, but just sort of in pop culture history recent you know recently mm-hmm. since since in mass media pop culture history especially it's um it's changed a lot of advertising and marketing since because man it was it was a mess i don't know if if how many of you guys out there are old enough to remember coke new coke coke classic the whole the whole thing going down but it was the biggest slow motion train wreck <laughs> in advertising history i think ever it was just the biggest misfire ever it's it's now the internet saying is do not want <laughs> this was the pure perfect example of just people didn't want it there was no demand for it Somebody at a in some some asshole in some boardroom meeting got an idea into their head, probably involving cocaine, <laughs> and and all of a sudden you know an idea was hatched and a plan was put into place that nobody wanted. It reminds me of the metric system. I remember that we I had a special class where we had to go and learn the metric system and. And uh, the teacher was telling us, oh, you, you know, you, you guys are getting the head start on everybody because pretty soon we're not going to be using pounds and ounces and inches anymore. It's all going to be centimeters. And, and yeah, and didn't uh, exactly translated into it soda. Yeah, no, translated into soda. That's about it. It became a nice measurement for a big, big-ass soda to drink. But otherwise, yeah, nobody wanted it. Just like the, um, which is also in here is the Susan B. Anthony coin. Another thing that just, there was no demand for, no interest in once it was there. No matter how hard you push it, you're just not going to get people to use it. They just don't care. They don't want to care. They're never going to care. Right. Um, And I think, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, I, I think since then, they've learned every everybody that tries something, some sort of radical rebranding or anything like that has learned their lesson from New Coke and has a backup plan to either make it make if it if it tanks to make it into some ironic positive marketing ploy for their triumphant return Twinkies recently that was you know the triumphant we just had the triumphant return of Twinkies we've been having a rash of like the sriracha sriracha sauce announced that they had that they were going to have a um, shortage of sriracha sauce and everybody cleared out the stores and um, Velveeta just announced recently that there might oh, be some yeah. Velveeta shortages in the future, and people have been running out and and hoarding their hoarding some Velveeta. It's a great marketing gimmick, dude. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It works. 
this uh, new Coke, this was one of my, uh, like Chris said, this was one of my lightning round picks, right? And the reason for that is because I remember this. Now, just to put that in perspective, um, and Chris, I'm not, this is not a shot across the bow at you as far as age goes. I'm just saying, you know, there is such a thing as generational context. Yes. And I would say that this is really more in line with Chris's generation than it is, strictly speaking, mine. I mean, I'm 33, which means I would have been, I guess, four years old when a new Coke hit the scene. And even so, I remember this. New Coke, to me, is one of the greatest marketing blunders of all time. Mm-hmm. And as I understand it, basically it went a little something, something like this. Based upon a series of taste tests with a new product, the executives at Coca-Cola basically redesigned the Coke formula. Let's just call a spade a spade. It was to be more similar to Pepsi, really is what it comes down to. Now, the people who weren't pissed off and offended by that viewed it as Coca-Cola acknowledging that Pepsi had the superior product. And it's an interesting thing because people objected to the Coca-Cola formula being changed. But what you need to remember, like I said, I remember the new Coke episode. I remember drinking new Coke. I live in Texas, people. I mean, Coke is a big deal here. I was only four years old when this mess went down, but I'll remember it for the rest of my life. And the one thing I cannot remember anybody ever saying is that they didn't like the taste of new Coke. Not one. Not saying that there weren't people like that out there. I'm just saying I never heard that. Now, don't get me wrong. People were pissed off, but their arguments mostly revolved around Coca-Cola as the sort of icon of America's cultural identity. Nobody gave a shit about the taste of New Coke. That was never the point. Whether New Coke tasted good or tasted horrible, the original Coke formula had become so iconic in a way that probably even Coca-Cola executives hadn't realized that people kind of had a riot. They just kind of threw a, a, a hissy fit. When it's the like form- redesigning Mickey Mouse in a lot of ways. Yeah, and he's got like the saggy pants and like uh, – yeah, and, uh, and other stuff. Yeah, basically gangsta Mickey. It'd be, it would be about like that. And what what people seemed to object to was that at least the perception that New Coke was infringing upon America's cultural heritage. I mean who gives a damn about taste tests? This is about Americana, bitch. And – we all know what happened in the end. Coca-Cola gave in to consumer pressure and relaunched the original formula under the name Coke Classic. And it was didn't even take all that long. It was only like five or six months or something like that. Yeah, it was pretty quick. And and yeah, look, yeah, 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 I realize it's not the exact same formula as it was before, but fuck me, it's close enough, right? And guys, the Coke Classic label stuck around until 2009. Just think about that for a second. New Coke as a label in America was only around for, like I said, what was it, five, six, eight months, something like that? It, it was around actually like till just recently, <laughs> but it was only in a few places. There were a few places where it sold really good, and there was probably – they probably kept a couple of couple factories running that formula and sold to a few markets. But yeah, generally it was done in – 
inside of a year, I think. Right. Meanwhile, the Coke Classic label, the one we were a Pepsi house. Oh, really? So, oh, I, yeah, I, I, I'm Pepsi sorry. Household. Well, that's okay. So, Look, dude, you like you said, this is a safe place. Nobody's gonna kick your ass for drinking Pepsi. Uh, you know, I mean, I was a kid. I basically, my dad was a Pepsi drinker, so I I absorbed his biases in that way. But I mean, hand me a soda as a kid. I wasn't gonna turn my nose up at Coke. That's for sure. Um, I, I don't believe any of the taste test horseshit. I think that's just the story they came up with. I totally believe that, that they were just flat out like, let's change something. And I think they were like saying, let's, let's make it a little more like Pepsi. You know, let's, let's knock it a little more into the Pepsi direction. And, uh, so then they came up with the taste test to, to justify all that, because I'm sure you could go and do a bunch of taste tests and just keep the ones that that you wanted at that time. Well, and here's the thing about taste tests that nobody ever stops to fucking consider. All right, it's one thing to win at a taste test whenever you're basically predicating your decision upon a sip or a couple of sips, but something that you would want to drink with your meal. I'm sorry, that's a completely fucking different drink. All right. Kool-Aid may taste, to an adult, Kool-Aid may taste wonderful if all you have is a sip or two. Do you really want to have that, though, with your pizza or your or your steak or whatever fucking you, you ordered, your spaghetti, whatever it is? I don't think so. I really don't, you know? And I, this is, and I, I and this is sort of off subject, but, you know, for the sake of argument, let's say that there, actu- there were actual taste, and to be honest with you, I don't know one way or the other, but let's say that there were. So what? You know, I mean, the the supposed superiority that Coke, or rather that new Coke had over the regular kind, assuming that there even was any, mm-hmm. so what? I mean, a taste test isn't going to necessarily tell you what people prefer. It's basically going to tell you what tasted good in very limited moderation, you know? And that's a, to me, that's a completely fucking different thing, you know? I mean, does that make sense? And taste tests and food tests like that are so – they're not scientific. People – there's too many factors in people's psychology that affect things. There's too many. I, I saw a great Penn & Teller where they had – they were at like a hippie farmer's market. Yeah. And they were having people, you know, taste test – Vegetables that, you know, which vegetables are organic and which vegetables are not, you know, just regular grocery store. Oh, badass. That sounds great. What? uh, All right. And what was the outcome? Well, almost almost unanimously, you would have the people ranting, raving over the the grocery store saying, oh, this is obviously the organic tomato here. You can tell just by the color, the texture, the taste is better. This is a happier plant. Blah, you know, and you know, so it was all in their in their head and their biases, and 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 you know, they were they weren't judging any, you know, how how can you and taste and all that? How can you be objective about it? You know, right? It's it's a, and it's something that changes. You could have a stuffed nose and. And taste the most wonderful food in the world, and then be like, ah, it's kind of bland, you know, 
Or you could just be in a pissy mood. Or that, yeah. All right. Well, it, look, I mean, I, the point is, you know, no matter how you look at it, I don't think taste tests are, 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 are trustworthy. No matter what the weak spot, the, you know, the chink in the armor, I just don't trust them. I don't think they're, they're scientific at all. Uh, I don't think they're authoritative in any way. They were in this case, <laughs> for sure. Uh, they, you know, if the, if they indeed happened, they did they didn't play out into reality at all. Well, actually, and you know what? That leads into it. That le- honestly, this this honestly just occurred to me, right? I'm going to ask you to speculate on something, and I, and just feel okay. free to say that you don't know because th- maybe this isn't knowable. But suppose that Coca-Cola hadn't brought Coke two to market. All right. Suppose that they just they they kept regular Coke out there in wide variety, you know, plentiful quantity. And instead of replacing Coke, they brought out sort of a new a new drink, right? New cola drink, of right? Some sort. Yeah. Right. And you can do you can call it whatever you want, you know, um, finger fucker soda. All right. I don't could have been Coke too. They could have come out with Coke too and just uh. Because when they took out, brought out Coke too, it was like, and no more Coke. Say goodbye to Coke. There it goes. You know. Well, how do you think people would have reacted if they just brought this out in addition to Coke rather than as the replacement to Coke? How do you think people might have it's, reacted? It's hard to say. I think it would have gotten a lot of play at first, but I think in the end it would have been the the thing about colas is. I really don't think a lot of people judge colas by taste. The only time that cola really, I start getting like picky about it is sometimes you'll get some store brand cola that tastes kind of funky. Yeah. Or whatever. But for the most part, RC, Coke, Pepsi, any kind of cola drink pretty much works for me. You know, I, I it's, it's almost like, um, I knew one guy that I used to work with only would drink Coke from the can. Had to be in a can. It tasted different in the can to him. And it tasted better when it came out of the can than it, if it came out of a bottle. And I know people who only want to drink stuff out of a glass bottle. Yeah, so, I've seen that, yeah. And I I think it would have had just a been just like what it it wouldn't have been as scandalous. What would have happened is it would have had a short burst of people trying it out and checking it out. And probably some people, some people might like really, really like it. And then it would have just sort of inched down until it was discontinued, probably in about the same amount of time. Only there just wouldn't have been the furor and the, in in the end. And, and that's the last part of the, 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 story is they have the coke executive they said hey maybe you this was just a, a great marketing ploy you know from start to to finish and the the executives like we weren't that smart and we're not that dumb either you know they just sort of stumbled through it but anything after that <laughs> i don't think any of them can claim that i think a lot of people have tried to do it on purpose after that point i would agree yeah but that was definitely that was the cutting edge of that marketing thing so it was a stumbly bumbly um 
learn by learn by experience by bad bad experience uh, I have to imagine a lot of people got fired in the course of that or just knocked down the ranks or to the International Falls, Minnesota branch of Coca-Cola or distributing or whatever. Right, and that and, and that's something else. I mean, if you have – and obviously, I, I don't think it's necessarily worked to their detriment. Apparently, they've been number one ever since. But up to then, it just kind of makes me think that at some point, one person had to give final approval for all of this. And you got to figure. I mean, if America's, if we were, if we had a, a the same kind of system of punishment that they had back in the old Soviet Union, that guy would have ended up in frickin' Siberia, yeah. yeah, or I guess Alaska, you know. Um, and it just kind of makes you make, makes you wonder. I mean, did some people get forced into taking an early retirement or something like? Because I don't know about you, but if you know, I was if I was the president of that company. And I found out that basically some of the uh, marketing guys had had pushed this shit onto the market. Believe me, heads are going to roll all over the place, you know. Yeah, well, at that point, uh, that that's that's the whole answering to the shareholders part. <laughs> you know, something terrible like that happens. You have to show all the people that own shares that you're doing something to correct it, or to show that you're acknowledging that you put somebody who made bad decisions in in power. So that's. That's how people get fired. That's why, yeah. If it wasn't for that, nobody would ever get fired in any of those things because they're just they would just be well, too well paid. There would be nobody. There would be there, there would be nobody to care. You know, I think if it was an internal thing where just Pepsi didn't have shareholders and stuff, ah, they probably wouldn't fire anybody. There would be people that people would be mad at and stuff like that, but they're not going to fire anybody because they're thinking, "Yeah, that could be me someday." Right. But when you have shareholders, that puts the whip over you to 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 do something, and the easiest thing to do is go, "You're out, out of here." That would be my move. But all right, well, you got anything else about uh, New Coke? No, that's all I got for for that. All right. My uh, selections here, um, first up, I've got, this is uh, the picture phone from page 60. And the idea of a, of a picture phone is, especially these days, I think pretty self-explanatory. Basically, mm-hmm. AT&T tried for years to market a, a, a sort of video conferencing capability with their telephone system. But in spite of millions of dollars in development and promotions, their picture phone system, for whatever reason, just never took off. Now, my outlook on it is that the problem wasn't their idea so much as it was ahead of its time. Nobody was really clamoring for picture phones. Nobody could. And there was no way to do it correctly. And if people wanted a picture phone... They wanted a picture phone. They wanted to see a TV image of their friend talking in sync, you know. And we just didn't have, we did, I mean, bottom line, no bandwidth in those days, not enough bandwidth to do a, a real thing. So they had to come up with fiddle fuckery to, to, and call it a picture phone. Right. And this is one of those 
invention god it's like you're reading off my notes for me but this is one of those times when i think history can be a little bit of a harsh judge sometimes i mean don't you think at&t's been kind of vindicated on this one oh yeah oh no they were they were definitely heading in the right direction only i would uh, they probably shouldn't have even bothered trying to market it. You know what I mean? They should have just been R&Ding it for 30 or 40 years so that when finally we got to the point where circuitry got small enough and bandwidth got wide enough to where they would they would be the first ones to have a functioning one because they've been working on You know, they've been keeping up with the technology mm-hmm. i remember seeing these in the so, uh, s- several versions of these in the in the stores it had to be when scott gardner and i were like in high school i remember seeing one in ames down the street from scott mm-hmm. and it was ungodly expensive and not only that you had to buy two of them right because you had to have someone on the other end of them and then that the, that gives you one person that you can call you know, uh, uh, it, so it sort of that that's another thing about picture phones is it sort of almost depends upon there being some sort of unified technology set up so that everybody has a picture phone so you can call so you can actually use it. Right. That was, you know. Well, and I think the other thing was, you know, at, at least at the time that all of this stuff was going on and we're talking when this stuff was first devised what we're talking about is i want to say like the early to mid 60s or something like that and i just don't think there was a huge demand for people to want to see the people that they were talking to there would have been if it was cheap well and you know what maybe so but it's just it's one of those things that you know i look i'm not going to be the first one who pointed this out i god knows but it's one of those things where you know star trek has kind of come true on so many levels uh, mm-hmm. with different types of technology that we have today this is the picture phone is the one thing that we have that we can point back to and say you know what we were ahead of star trek on this you know not by much it, it's it's close but you know we we got there by nose you know and it's it's apropos of nothing i just wanted to point out that you know star trek beat us to the punch on so much Except for that, you know. But between Skype, actual video conferencing, and things like FaceTime and whatnot, I think we're pretty much there. You know, AT&T's problem, it's not that – I guess really maybe the best way to put it is that AT&T, they were just too far ahead of the curve. Somebody there, their vision outweighed – it was by far – it just by far outweighed what was technologically feasible at the time. And, and God knows, financially fee, uh, feasible at the time. But if they'd had something like the uh, the Internet to, to use as their backbone back then, I think it would have been a very different story. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, uh, another thing that sort of follows a similar path to this is uh, high-definition TV. Back when I was – back in 1990 when I was in film school, HDTV was developed – Mm-hmm. Except the problem was there were two different kinds of HDTV, just like when when it first started, mm-hmm. and there were two different formats, and each one of them wanted to be the format, 
it was basically VHS and beta. Right. And um, that was in 1990. I mean, when did HDTV finally become something that you, you could feasibly get and everybody could watch? It's only been in the last few years. Right. It took that long for them to battle out who was going to be the the you know the, the 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 primary format and so that all the TVs could play everything and um, it would have been a similar thing with the the picture phone if you could have come up with something that was as you know probably just slightly more expensive than your normal telephone but but in those days and and I mean in the old days your phone was basically leased from the phone company. Oh yeah, that's true. It was it was provided by Ma Bell and it was this big metal super solid unbreakable contraption, you know, so if if they could have upped your rates a little bit and put a picture on it and you could have had a good picture of grandma on it, they would have been happy to do it. Yeah. People would have people would have eaten that up. It would have been the talk of the town. But as it were, it was like every time anybody tried to market a, a picture phone, it, it's a it's a rich person's toy. It's like the early cell phones where, you know, the rich people had them and it was a big bulky thing that didn't really work good. But you could say, hey, look at this. Got the picture phone. You know, watch. We'll go and we'll call up the wife. Hey, honey, guess what? I'm calling you from the picture phone from the car. <laughs> I love the early days. Of, another side note, little side split is I love the early days of cell phones when um, we um, our first band practice space was right near. I still live near this hill called Pinnacle Hill that has all these radio towers on it that are shooting out all these radio waves. Right. And that had the first, it was basically the first cell phone tower, and we would get people's cell phone transmissions just coming in through our speakers. You're right, because that would have been speakers. analog back then, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we would hear, we would hear people talking on their cell phones. Total invasion of privacy, but we weren't even trying. But it didn't matter because 99.9% of the time it was just somebody going, "Hello, hey, honey, guess where I am? I'm on the in the car on the way to the store. Oh, I'm yeah. calling you up. Really? Yeah. Can you hear me? Good. You know that, and that was it." just call after call like that and i think it would have been the same thing with the picture phone it just it just wasn't there and one of my sidebar things we'll get into a sort of similar phenomena but it was just it was something like i would say someone like you and i would probably want it because we're nerds and we'd watch star trek and stuff like that so anything futuristic we would be really excited about it but it was the same with personal computers i remember when Mm. macintosh first came out the first really modern sort of user-friendly computer made made to actually do practical computer things easily and quickly it was still just way too expensive for anybody to even think about having it you know right and too foreign at the time, and now you have little grandmas who would be lost without their laptop, which is bizarre. But yeah, I know to think where we are. Well, and well, actually, I say that you know the people that are 
like 20 years ago, like when laptops, I think first really, I'm not going to bemoan it. I love it. <laughs> I think it's, I, it's what I've been dreaming about for, you know, since I was a little kid. Hmm. Well, it's just that, you know, the people that were, I guess like the uh, old fuddy daddies from uh, 20 years ago, when laptops first really hit the scene, mm -hmm. they're not around anymore. The people that are the old fuddy duddies now, yeah, they weren't it's... such old fuddy duddies 20 years ago when laptops first hit the scene, and they're a little more comfortable with the technology. No, and... they're children of the they're they're from the 60s generation actually, so yeah, they might be a little more. They were raised on Star Trek. That and you know one of the things I noticed about my grandmother and not just my grandmother but really I, I think she's kind of a microcosm of her generation you know she grew up kind of in the specter of the bomb mm -hmm. and so if you push theoretically if you were to push the wrong button at the wrong time civilization as you know it just went bye bye right and I don't think that's really a, a psychological hallmark of of our generation, yours and no. mine. I don't think, I mean, that's how we learn stuff. Oh, what's this? Microsoft Word. I don't know what this is. I'm just going to push a bunch of buttons until I figure out what they do. And I'm sorry, you know, there's really not much of a chance that we're going to find ourselves in an unintended nuclear exchange with the Soviet Union. We don't live in, in the specter of the bomb the same way that she did. Right. And so right. whenever she was coming up, if you don't know what a button does, hands off. If you and I don't know what a button does, you fucking push it until you figure you it out. You push it, yeah. <laughs> and it's there's a very different psychology. I mean, I it, it's kind of a joke whenever you say it, but at the same time, it's kind of true. And anyways, it's just it's one of those things that I think is just kind of interesting. You know, these generational differences. You know, them and us. Now, my second uh, a story to choose from. This is uh, Meat Millie Vanilli from page eighty-two. <laughs> uh, and it's it's funny because theoretically this story could just as easily have been included in the big book of hoaxes yes for my reference point but i'll come back to that more in just a minute plus before i get into that plus this millie vanilli mess kind of ties in with points i made in the big book of hoaxes episode where I kind of pissed all over news media for basically for manipulating their news stories to their own purposes. And my point at the time was that, was that this transcends party affiliation because I don't, I, I try my best not to run an ideological podcast. Other people may, I don't. What I wanted to do when I uh, pissed all over news media last time was, basically indict both sides of the aisle when I made my criticism. Now, I mention all of that to say the same thing is true for entertainment media as well. But again, first, some backstory. Basically, Millie Vanilli was a duo made up of Rob, pa Rob Pilatus and Fab Morvan. Now, they didn't have a whole lot of musical talent, but what they did have was a very marketable look. Their their basic image was pretty much in line with what entertainment media of the late 
80s and early 90s looked for. But as I say, they couldn't really sing or play any instruments. Not really. Or at least not well enough to cut it in the music industry. Put it that way. So their manager hit upon a great idea. Why not let Rob and Fab be the public face while other performers did the heavy lifting in terms of the music? And so a scam was born. And pretty soon, Millie Vanilli was an international pop sensation. And it just didn't last. Rumors that Rob and Fab were literally just frontmen for singers and musicians with actual talent started making the rounds, and before too long, those rumors were confirmed during a supposedly live performance when the backing CDs started skipping during the middle of a song. And after that, the truth was out, and there was no way around it. If you, if any of you were watching, I want to say it was, um, was it, it, might, it might have been Jay Leno or David Letter. It was somebody. Um, but basically, a couple of years ago, Ashley Simpson was basically caught red-handed in an identical situation. I think it was Saturday Night Live. Oh, Saturday Night Live? Okay, well, they obviously... I think it was somebody got caught on set. Somebody did that on Saturday Night Live where it just stopped and they were just stuck. Yeah. And, well, I know for sure it was Ashley Simpson. I just didn't know it was SNL, but either way, after that, you know, you don't really have a way... you You don't come back from something like that. There's really no way around it. Before all that stuff happened, though, basically, I guess you could say the gestalt of Millie Vanilli. I remember hearing a lot about Millie Vanilli, and mostly from girls I went to school with. And I guess if you wanted to make a comparison, I would say my awareness of Millie Vanilli is – it was probably comparable to your awareness, Chris, of Sonny and Cher. I mean, yeah, you probably heard of them. Oh, no, no, no. Well, Sonny and Cher had a hit TV show that we used to watch every week on TV. Oh. Um, maybe um, – I would say I would say Sean Cassidy. Okay. All right. Well, fair enough. All right. But, you know, it's something that you were aware of, but it really – at the same time, it, it wasn't the center of your universe. It wasn't you know? part of my world, really, yeah. Anyway. Or my sister's world. <laughs> oh, yeah, and that's easy. Yeah, easy to believe. But anyway, for too long, <clears throat> truth was out there. Lawsuits got filed. Music stores had to offer refunds, and Rob Pilatus and Fab Morvan were pretty much tarred, feathered, and run out of town. Now, I mentioned how this whole episode compares to the point I made in the Big Book of Hoaxes episode where news media on both sides of the aisle shapes stories to, to suit their agenda. And to me, this is... I guess you could say this is the the equivalent of that for the music business. This is entertainment media doing the exact same fucking thing. A manager and a record label didn't have a pop band or a boy band or whatever to market, so they just fucking invented one and sold that lemon to the public like, hey, it's no big deal. They completely fabricated this thing from the ground up. And to me, it's very similar to what news media people do. I mean, I don't see a difference. I, what, what about you? Well, it's when you watch the news, you're watching a guy who's reading you the news. He's not a person who's gathered the news. You know, the same, the, basically the same thing as Millie Vanilli. He's not somebody who wrote that copy. <coughs> he didn't write his own copy. He's just there to present, you know, a face. 
right. on it. So on, on, a, on a manufactured product. And as such, I was not that scandalized by Millie Vanilli. It was amusing to me that people were concerned that that, that, that somebody would go, I mean, personally, if I had a record and I loved that record and I found out that the people who were on that record didn't make the record, that would just become a fun fact about the record, you know? Right. And be like, oh, and, and by the way, you know, it was it's like the band Klaatu. Um, they've refused to reveal their identities and people thought that they were the Beatles. So there were rumors that it was the Beatles as a as a anonymous studio band and they sold a million records. And then when people found out that they were a bunch of Canadian studio musicians, nobody cared after that. Mm-hmm. But... I mean, with the kind of music that Millie Vanilli does, I mean, it's a cynical form from the very beginning. It's it's made, it's a marketed thing. It's made to, to be, bluntly, to be marketed to people with limited taste in music because they're too young to have heard a lot of music. Mm-hmm. So they're mostly basing their interest in the music on if the people they think are making it are cute. So, flim-flamming a bunch of 14-year-olds into thinking middle-aged studio musicians were Milli Vanilli was just kind of amusing for me. I just didn't see how it was a huge... It's, it's not ethical, but in the same point, it's in a business where ethics don't really come into play anyway. Right. So, why would you... You know, I just didn't understand why people expected... Why they were so surprised that this pop band was not all that it seemed, just like probably so many other other you know from the monkeys, you know the monkeys were sort of the monkeys ended up actually having you know a, a, a amount of talent and if left to their own devices could write songs and stuff, but that was just sort of I think luck on the part of who they cast. If they if they didn't, they just would have had Carol King and Neil Diamond write more songs for them. Well, and 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 that leads into something I wanted to bring up. I mean, to me, it seems like Millie Vanilli. When you really come down to it, it's basically taking music industry tradition and just basically taking that to the next level. And, I, and I'll explain yeah. what I mean. Um, well, hell, you're a you're a Led Zeppelin fan. Do I really need yeah. to tell you what Jimmy Page's origin story is in the music business? He was a session player, and yeah. he, he's he's freely willing willing to admit, you know, yeah, I played on this Rolling Stones record or something like that. Basically, where he was a, an extra guitarist. To my knowledge, though, he has never he has never ever gone on record saying those instances whenever he completely basic when it when he basically totally replaced somebody's lead guitarist and it, that's actually Jimmy Page you're listening to you may think it's Bob Smith and it's not it's Jimmy Page he's never ever admitted to that but whenever it's basically he's there just as an additional player he'll tell you those stories all day long but he will mm-hmm. they, we all know that he that he did it and mm-hmm. I, and so so whenever you hear a Rolling Stones record you can rest assured that's Keith Richards that's well. It's probably Keith Richards playing lead, right? And you may hear someone who's playing rhythm guitar. That's Jimmy Page, and he he will tell you those stories all day long because it's still the Rolling Stones that you're listening to. They just have basically 
uh, somebody playing rhythm, and that's it. But whenever he actually outright fucking replaced somebody, he never he never names names on when that happened, other than to say that it happened. I don't see a difference between that and Millie Vanilli, except that this is basically taking that that model where you replace Bob Smith with Jimmy Page for your record. Yeah, you basically it's basically taking that concept and now you're just going all the way with it. You know, I they don't see what they, the difference is. They grab these two and and. I feel I mean one of these guys ended up killing themselves. Yeah. You know, it, it, this was after this comic was made so it doesn't end like it ends with Millie Vanilli looking depressed on a couch, but it got it was it got serious and I don't remember which one of them, but one of them It was Rob Pilotus. I actually looked it up cuz I wanted to know what the hell I was talking about when I when I when you and I got into this, it was Rob Pilotus. And and you know, they were they were hired to do this, you know. They were they were they were brought in to do it. They 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 were not like ah ha ha. Let's have this plan. Let's find let's become a band, but find people with talent to be the real band. They were just like, hey, we got a gig, and somebody's gonna pay us a lot of money, and we're gonna be pop stars, and you know we're going to collect groupies. Right. So. You know, how awesome is that? Why wouldn't they take that up? Especially if you're two sort of guys that aren't ever going to have a pop group anyway. So I I totally don't blame. I mean, it's cynical all the way through, but we're not talking the Rolling Stones. We're not talking the Beatles. We're not talking a, a band of artists. I mean, the studio musicians who made the songs are artists insofar as they're sort of like carpenters. <laughs> Where they're like, let's make a, let's let's try to figure out, okay, let's get a good baseline and figure out a pop song. I don't think they were trying to like, you know, leave their legacy or their message of their philosophy or anything. They were like, interested in 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 making a pop song. Yeah, let's make which, a hit single. Which, yeah, and which sucks when you're a middle-aged guy because that's not you can't sell the records to the people you want to sell them to because they don't want anything to do with you. It's kind of creepy. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, you got to get... It was just like that band Garbage. I was just talking to my roommate. We were talking about them the other day that they were like 40-something-year-old musicians who were really good and had a long history of being in a whole bunch of bands. And and they were producers stuff. themselves. Yeah, and they, they knew the business. They knew all the stuff, but they never had gotten a huge layer of you know and they were writing good pop songs so they had to grab shirley manson and put her in the front in order to have anybody pay any any kind of attention to them at all so i mean i'm i'm not a connoisseur of the milli vanilli music but i'm also i used to be a big detractor of you know just super crafted pop music for 12 year old girls but now I, my opinions on it have softened. My opinions on the stuff that I hate haven't softened, but just in general on it, I think it's 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 a necessary. It's almost like um, training wheels music for kids, and it just introduces them into the idea that they can enjoy music and they grow out of it, and they're eventually going to find something that's more complex whether it's a genre i like or not i don't know but it's you know they're gonna grow out of it so it's sort of and when it comes right down to it a really good example 
of a pop song crafted for one of these guys is usually a really good song. So every once in a while you'll get these really good bubblegummy stupid things that stick in your head. The, the Spice Girls made some really good just dumb songs that, that do their purpose. They, they stick in their head and they make you sort of bound. They'll drive you crazy. Mm-hmm. But um, so I guess I can appreciate it as a form <laughs> now. But uh, it was it was a huge deal. People were angry, angry that they'd been betrayed by Millie Vanilli. If I found out that somebody was writing Bob Dylan songs all these years, I would feel angry and betrayed. But it, if I found out some, you know, finding out somebody wrote Millie Vanilli songs, it's like, oh, OK, that makes perfect sense. <laughs> right. Well, and this actually sort of leads into my last two points about all things Millie Vanilli. And then I swear we're going to, you know, we're going to drop this subject. Right. But um, first of the last two, the first one, and I know this is going to piss some people off, but honestly, What's the difference between this and ghostwriting a book? Right? I mean, um, you, you've got basically someone who's got a marketable name or a marketable image or whatever else, and then you have someone with real talent doing basically the real work. Yeah, yeah, but and with a ghostwritten book... Well, I don't know 100% of the time, but I'll bet you mo- it seems like most of the time the way they do it is the writer of the the ghostwriter will get together with the the celebrity author mm-hmm. and they'll interview them. Mm-hmm. And they'll record them and they'll be like, "Okay, let's get these stories down and then I'm going to translate them into, you know, prose that reads smoothly, but I'm going to try to capture their voice or capture the spirit of their stories or whatever so there's there's interaction between the person who's getting the thing ghostwritten now then but then again there's other stuff like uh, but uh, you know i mean some of the william shatner stories and stuff like that mm-hmm. but and then i was gonna say glenn beck too but i'll bet you with both of those guys they get to they have story ideas you know and they probably go to their ghostwriters and go, look, here's a story idea. Although some ghostwriters have been, some people have just found someone's book that they wrote and bought it and put their name on it, mm. bought the rights to it and said, you know, can I, that would be maybe more like Millie Vanilli. Mm. But I think for the most part, ghostwriters, there's some degree of interaction, even if it's just sort of obligatory and cursory interaction Millie Van- who knows maybe Millie Vanillion were saying hey could you write us some more happy songs or it actually it didn't matter because all they had to do is move their lips so fair enough uh, all right um the other point that I wanted to bring up was and you sort of touched upon it a minute a minute ago people felt betrayed by Millie Vanilli mm-hmm why? All right. Why? Why? Basically, why did they bear the brunt of this? Why wasn't Arista Records called out on the carpet? I mean, what did those fucking executives just never once ask them to play live or listen to the or, or something? I yeah. mean, how fucking little due diligence? Because apparently, actually, let me just back up. 
officially what we're supposed to believe is that Arista Records and those executives had fucking no idea that this was going on. All right. So let's just take them at their word for a minute. Okay. How fucking incompetent do you have to be? I mean, there is such a thing in this world just for covering your ass legally, if nothing else. There is such a thing as due diligence. And the reason they call it due, di due diligence is specifically so you can say later on, guys, I did what is industry standard, and mm -hmm. these guys still got one by me. Don't blame me. All right? I would love to know in what fucking bizarro world just signing these motherfuckers to your, to your little record label constitutes due diligence. How in the hell does that happen? Why are we burning yeah. Millie Vanilli in effigy when, you, as you said, they're just basically a bunch of models and pretty boys who – they're doing their job. Right. They didn't it's not they didn't really do anything other than what they were told. You know, if we if we are to believe what what the Arista record executives told us and they knew nothing, why are we not are, why are we why didn't anybody uh say guys, you know what? I don't either either you really suck at your job or your procedures and quality control suck. But either way, something here sucks, and I don't buy it. No, we're coming after you too. Well, it's like a department store Santa. You know, are you gonna if if you're a little kid and you find out that department store Santa is a creepy old guy who runs a cigar shop? You know, mm -hmm. are, do you sue because do you, do you hate that guy because he fooled you into Santa? It's, he's not the one. Who did the Macy's hired him to to trick you? Yeah. Well, it's just – it's one of those things that I I was sort of curious about and just wanted to ask you about. Now, my final selection here is uh, Smokeless Smokes on page 74. Now, I say this as I'm puffing off my e-cigarette, uh, which is what I've been doing this whole time we've been on the phone. My e-cigarette died, man. Oh, it did? Yeah, I got I, – I got uh, – Nice, one of the nice bigger, you know, thicker ones, mm -hmm. solid state with a tank on it and everything. And one of the batteries died rather quickly, just stopped working. Mm. And the other one was working like a champ until it just stopped working. Mm. Uh, and I've been meaning to ask you, what's what's your brand of real fire cigarettes? Oh, well, the uh, tobacco kind is, uh, I smoke Marlboro Red Label 100s. Ooh, whoa. What? I was I, I thought I was gonna trump you there. I'm a, I'm just regular Marlboro Red normals. Oh well, hold on. Let let me. Okay, guys, let me. Those just... hundreds are brutal, man. Those are hardcore. Yeah, well, they yeah, are. That's man. what I started on, actually. Yeah, well, before you give me too much credit, let me just do some clarification, both for you and for our listeners. All right, there was a time when you could go to the gas station and you could you basically had your choice of Marlboro Reds. Marlboro Mediums, Marlboro Lights, Marlboro Ultralights. And just so we're clear on this, basically what that means is the difference between a, a Marlboro Red and a Marlboro Light in terms of length is absolutely nothing. The total length of any Marlboro Light cigarette versus any Marlboro Red cigarette, they are identical. What changes is the length of the filter, right? That was the real difference. So as the name might suggest... A Marlboro Light had a comparatively longer filter. An Ultralight had, I think, the longest filter of all. That's like half the fucking cigarette or something. Whereas Marlboro Reds had a very small filter. That's your background. Now, that is what the, all of those different types of cigarettes used to be called. Now, apparently, at some point in time, I fucking I have no idea when, but at some point, 
some dumb son of a bitch thought, or at least told his lawyer, that he thought Marlboro Lights had basically less shit in them to give you cancer. All right, and so he took his case to a judge, and so the judge said, "Okay, Marlboro, you can't use those words anymore." So now they have to come up with all these just fucking fruity little labels for everything. <clears throat> and so what I smoke is now it's now called Marlboro Red Label 100s. Now there was a time when these used to be called Marlboro Medium 100s. And so when Chris says that he smokes Marlboro Reds, he means the big boys. What I smoke is not something quite as harsh. See, Marlboro 100s to me used to be the same as Marlboro Reds, but just longer. Right. And they were in a gold package. I remember that, dude. That was like 1995, right? They still sell them here. They still sell them here. You can only get them in soft packs. Fuck, I remember that. I thought I was... You'll feel the spot on your lung form halfway through one of those babies. Yeah, well, and there you have it. But anyway, and so to say that you have a regular-sized cigarette, a short, as it were, versus a 100, basically what that means is if if you look close at the paper on any cigarette, what you see is these little tiny... Uh, gray lines. It's basically white paper, but you have these little tiny gray lines, right? And I think on a regular, like a short cigarette, those are, I think they have something like 70 lines, and they're, um, how long are those, would you say, like three inches or four inches long, the total? Four inches, yeah. What I have, this is probably closer to, I don't know. I have a measuring tape and a pack of cigarettes right here. Okay. They are three and a quarter inches long. Okay. Do you have any idea how close I was to saying three and a quarter inches? And I was like, no, that's a Star Wars figure. <laughs> so I, I, I didn't say, but I was actually very close. What I have, this is, um, I'd say this is maybe five inches long, I guess. And so my cigarette's actually, <laughs> mine's longer than his. Um, but anyway, so yeah, and that's what happened. Somebody basically wanted to get paid. And so now Marlboro, they're not allowed to use the the traditional names. So that means that when I go to the fucking grocery store, what I get to tell some, well, I'm going to try to find a nice way to say it. What I get to tell some moron behind the counter is no, you dumbass. I don't want reds. I want red labels and they are not the same thing. But anyway, so thanks. Whoever did that. Thank you. You've made my life a lot more difficult than it needed to be. (laughs) Asshole. Sorry about that. That was just my little rant there. Anyway, now where were we? That's okay. Now where were we? Smoke the smokes. Oh, yeah. Smoke, yeah. Anyway, so I've been sitting here this whole time puffing away on my electronic cigarette, so just keep that in mind as I read this next part. Uh, Smokeless Smokes from page 74. This is basically electronic cigarettes in the 1980s. Now, yeah, I realize it's a bit of an oversimplification, but fuck you. It's my podcast. Anyway. Basically, these are electronic cigarettes back in the 1980s. And again, I see this as this is one of those ideas that it was just ahead of its time and ahead of its technology. Today, tons of people use electronic cigarettes. And so I think this is one of those things that history has kind of vindicated this idea, too. E-cigs have let smokers come back indoors, basically. Now... I realize that there's an entire group of... For now. Yeah. Well, yeah. And uh, on that note, I realize that there's an entire 
group of dipshits out there who think they're allergic to water vapor, but motherfuckers, you're not. So, anyway. You still hear all this ignorant bullshit about e-cigs getting banned from certain public places. It's just fucking ignorant. So, still. I did kind of have a a memorable moment about this when I saw Man of Steel when that movie came out. Basically, I was uh, hanging around with my girlfriend and then um, another friend of mine. We were just hanging around in the lobby talking about the movie and everything. I'm just sitting there plugging away on my electronic cigarette, right? And some pimply-faced fucking teenager, employee of the place, came up to me and he's like, excuse me, sir, but you're not allowed to smoke in here. And without missing a beat, I turned around and said, Yes, I am. And he said, no, no, sir, no, you're not. And I said, yes, I am. I've already spoken to your manager. He says it's okay. Leave me alone. And so, fuck, dude, I didn't talk to the guy's manager, at least not about that. You know? Well, the, 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 the big point with that is you weren't smoking. There was no smoke going on. None. It was a, a different process is going on with different results that look like smoking. That's it. But that's the reason people are banning it is not because the the venue is like that they know what's up probably, but it's because there's dumb shits sitting around that just can't co- conceptualize that someone on an e-cigarette isn't blowing something dangerous around anymore. You know, that it's not the same thing. Even though they can't smell it anywhere and it, it the smoke sort of disappears in half a second, It they still think it's... And there's also, I think, an element of people who think that, that they don't want to see anybody getting away with anything, you know? Oh, you know... It, it, the, the, they don't want people to smoke and the getting people to the whole like i don't want people to smoke in public because of non-smokers health there's some people who legitimately believe that there's some people who that's just their excuse to exercise the power to make people stop smoking because they don't like it that people smoke and there's people who'll do that with sex or anything that they think anybody's getting away with. And so in New York City, they just banned them everywhere. Regular cigarettes are banned. And in the whole language of the whole thing, they keep referring it, referring to it as smoking and smoke. You know, the smoke from e-cigarettes and all that. Well, and I, uh, I this was, I want to say it's like about a year and a half or two years ago or something like that. But I happened across this uh and it's I, I i there's no other word for it it's a youtube video but it's really audio from a radio show right okay and yeah, it, was, yeah. it was this bit that uh rush limbaugh did and he was basically telling the story about the time and uh, he said that he was basically hanging out in this restaurant here's a story right great four seasons bar in the big island and i whipped out my e-cig and i started smoking it for 10 minutes, total freedom. And then the general manager came up, very sheepish, embarrassed, but he had to do his job. Mr. Limbaugh, I, 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 I know you're aware that no smoking allowed in public here. And there are people eating 
over there. And there were people eating about 20 yards away, outside. And I looked at him, and I said, it's not, it's, it's not a cigarette. And I unscrewed the nicotine cartridge, and I showed him the battery, and I showed... These people, and they think it's cigarette because the end of it lights up. Like, uh, looks like a cigarette at the end when you, when you take a puff on it. It's actually the battery indicator. When it flashes three times, the battery's dead. So I said, it's, it's, it's just water vapor. And I explained, and I, I exhaled some water vapor near him so he could smell it. There wasn't any smell. He said, oh, that's fine. Okay, fine. So I continued to smoke. He came back. A short while later, I said, Mr. Limbaugh, we're still getting some uh, customer complaints. I said, why? Well, one woman says you look like you're enjoying yourself so much, and it could be setting a bad example for the children that are here with their parents. They might, you're looking like you really enjoy it, and it might be tempting children to want to smoke. And I said, who uh, said this? Oh, Mr. Limbaugh, I, 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 I don't, it's one of, one of our female patrons. So I said, well, I'll, I'll keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. And I put it down for a while and started looking around. Because, you know, I have been trained. Now, over these many years, you can spot. I can spot those who are staring daggers at me. So I did, I let some time go by, did not look at the crowd gathered after the general manager left. In fact, I looked a little ticked off as part of the act, so that whoever it was complaining would feel good. Ah, we succeeded, Limbaugh's ticked off. So after about ten more minutes, I started looking around, and I found two or three really good suspects who it could have been. I found two or three. You recognize a, a, a genuine smile. You recognize a smug stare. And you recognize daggers. You just do. It's a matter of learned security procedure. So when I thought I had figured out these top three, they were in different areas, I picked it back up and took a puff facing each direction. Just to let them know that their their happiness was temporary. And the GM never showed up, didn't come back or anything. And then we left, I guess, another half. We were there an hour and a half, so we left about a half hour after that. And, of course, all my buddies, there's nine of us there. And they're all in on the joke. I even gave one to Hartley. Hartley started puffing on one. So it, it, that ticked them off even more. I just know it did. I didn't see it. Nobody came up and said so, but I just know it. Well, that's what that's what that's what exactly what I was saying. There's people who don't that they, they're like, oh, you're getting away with it, you know. And it's like, as a matter of fact, yes, I am getting away with it, but I've come to a workaround, which is exactly what you would think the non-smoking advocates would want. It's like I understand the total like. Um, I don't like I don't like smoking indoors. I don't like I didn't mind it in bars when it was everybody smoking cuz whatever, but I am aware that you know cigarette smoke can bother the hell out of people or be really oppressive to people or whatever. So, uh, indoors and I don't like the I don't like the smell of it that sticks to me and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But whatever, but I um 
I just don't un- – and I understand the desire not to have smoking in your bar or restaurant or whatever of that, although I think it should be up to the bar or the restaurant whether they want to have people sm- – you know, there were a couple smoke-free bars here in Rochester that did really good because people would go to them because they wouldn't go to bars – I knew that as a band, we could play at those bars and we would see a lot of people that you wouldn't see who wouldn't come out. But so now we have e-cigarettes, the perfect workaround for it. It doesn't send nicotine your way, you know, and that's debatable whether even that's causing any problems. But it doesn't do that. You don't smell them. All you do is see somebody smoking it. That's it. How disturbing is that? You know, obviously it is to some people, and that's that's just pathetic. I, I also think there's a certain amount of people who just feel powerless, and when they have a way of enforcing their power, you know, something, some sort of trump card that they can use, they'll use it no matter what, you know, and. And the, and in restaurants, that's a big thing. Is that you know, there's people who just want to find something inexcusable in, in and unacceptable to complain about. Right, and I, you know, and, and I agree with it. What I, a friend of mine, what he what he calls it is basically sharing the misery. This person yeah. is really, if you think about it, moments away from just killing themselves. Right, they're miserable. They want everyone else to be miserable, too. Right, right. It's, Why does this person get to enjoy themselves in public? Right, and it, it's nothing to do with you know public health. It's nothing to do with uh, anything like that. Fundamentally, what what they don't like, and, and again, I have to. I think it kind of calls back to that uh, Rush Limbaugh story. It looks like you're enjoying it, and that is ultimately the issue here. You know, no one should be allowed to ever have fun. No one should ever be allowed to enjoy themselves. We should all just sit around and just think about killing the the fastest, most efficient way to off ourselves. And I, you know, it sounds cynical as all fuck to say that, but dude, I think it's I think it's fucking true. I think that. Or do you think Douglas Adams got the idea for Vogon Commanders? You know, uh, I just had an unsuccessful love affair, so I don't see why anybody else should have a good time. Surely yeah. it's canceled. Well, yeah, and there you have it. So, anyway, so I, that was going to be what. I was very excited about smokeless smokes in these days when they were announcing they were coming out with them. The 80s thing, you mean, or? Yeah, the 80s. They, they were in the night in the early 90s. They were. They, I remember going to buy cigarettes, and there were um, pamphlets that they were putting out saying "coming soon, smokeless cigarettes." Um, and they had a whole marketing campaign for them, and they never came out. And I saw them, and I'm like, I'm really excited about this. I like this idea. I like the idea of just getting the nicotine without getting the tar and the nasty stuff because the nicotine's what I'm after. That's why I smoke. I like the stimulant effect of nicotine on my brain. It's really good for writing anything that I have to write or, you know, working on projects and stuff. And to get a healthier, you know, delivery system for nicotine. It sounds like a win-win for everybody, you know? I mean, nicotine has its bad effects, but then again, so does almost anything that you're going to enjoy, that you're going to do in life that brings you happiness. <laughs> well, look, yeah, and that's actually kind of my angle. Look, I think everybody, 
I don't know if vice is the, is the right way to say it, but everyone has a couple of things that they really like. And for some people, that includes using substances that are not legal. And that's maybe about as specific as I need to get. It could now, be haagen for some people, too. Right. And for me, thank God, my two favorite, for lack of a better word, substances or vices, they are caffeine and they are nicotine. Uh, right, both Frank of which. Zappa style. I'm sorry, what? Frank Zappa style. Oh, well, if you say so. Those were his. Those were his two vices of choice. And luckily for me, those are not. One of them is kind of controlled. The other one is available to anybody who wants it. You know. Mm-hmm. And those are the two things that 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 I really like. I like I like drinking Coke especially, but I like caffeine and I also like nicotine. There's something about one. Always leads me to the other. I don't. Maybe it's so I can stay up late, like Dennis Leary says, just stay up late and smoke fucking more. But all I can tell you is, anybody who gets between me and either one of those, you know, my look. I it, it as with a lot of things, right? And again, I try not to run an ideological podcast, but in this case, maybe it's unavoidable. I kind of consider myself a libertarian about a lot of issues, you know. I don't really care what anybody else does as long as it doesn't affect me. By all means, dude, swing your fist anywhere you want. Just make sure you don't hit me in the nose, right? And I don't understand. I mean, that's my that's my attitude, and what I don't get is why can't other people have that same attitude as well? I mean, dude, I'm well aware of the health risks of drinking this much Coke, and I'm still doing it. I'm well aware of the health risks of of smoking cigarettes and also partaking of my electronic cigarette, mm-hmm. you know, everything in the world, every bit of public relations and marketing, those machines have not stopped me from, you take, you take your risk when you get in your car any day, right? More so than if more so if, than if you're doing than a lot of drugs that you could do, you know, so, or, or skydiving even or something like that you know it's just uh, you could you could you i know people who are addicted to running every day because of the endorphins they get and they could end up with bad knees and bad ankles it's a very real possibility but you know what they know that and they enjoy doing that and someday their their knees might go bad and they'll stop running <laughs> you know right and or, you, and you know what Strictly speaking, their, you know, their, the joy they get in running and jogging and exercising and yeah. working out, do you know what effect that has on my life? Absolutely none. You know, they don't hurt me when they do it, if, and they don't if help it's gonna have If it's going to have any effect on your life, it's probably going to have a positive effect because if they're happier, you might have a better interaction with them, <laughs> okay. you know, when you run into them in public. Okay, fair know. enough, right. But I'm saying that, you know, like to the degree it affects me at all, which it doesn't, but like to the degree that it affects me at all, that's about – that's probably about the only way that it, that it does affect me, you know? And if other people want to jog and exercise and take their dogs for walks and stuff, the fuck difference does it make to me? I don't care, you know? And it just it, – it, it, it bugs the hell out of me when someone presumes upon me telling me what I do and don't need to do with my free time. With my body, with my life, you know? And so I just say, fuck you to those people, you know? So. Just biding your time till you die. Yeah, that's, isn't that all of us? So, anyway, so, anyway, that's that stuff. So, 
That's about the most I had to say there, cussing out my own audience. Now, as to the lightning round, um, Chris, I believe you're up. Um, now, when I was looking around for your lightning round thing, I wasn't able to find a page number for it. Do you know what page which, number? Which one? Um, well, the Ulrich von Lichtenstein right. is on 154. 154. Ulrich von Okay, I see. Okay, there. Oh, this one. Oh, my gosh. That's this one of one the is... most pathetic stories in the whole book. And that is saying something. I mean, this now, one, this guy gets the prize. Now, I almost didn't pick this because I didn't pick a lot of the stories from long ago because they've had a chance to become apocryphal and, you know, embellished and stuff. But this story is so great because it gives you an insight into the just the whole weirdness of the relationship between knights and and noble women, you know, that I just never was aware of. You know, I mean, I'm only aware of the, the, all that stuff in the sort of King Arthur Camelot sense. But, there, you know, there was a whole, this whole thing where knights would become... Yeah, there's a whole social know, custom of, here, yeah. Yeah, and uh, where they would become obsessed with a, a noble woman who would be married... So they would have to have this whole sort of platonic love thing for them where the woman would send them off on missions and and all of this and you know and th but there were also there were also opportunities where they could be in a bed together with a lump between a, it's just bizarre but anyway this guy had the bad fortune of picking the most sadistic noblewoman ever and he was he was dedicated he was dedicated to winning her loyalty he was he cut his lip off he cut his finger off at i don't think she asked him to cut her his lip off but she mentioned that she didn't like how his upper lip protruded right um at one point she had him dressed up as a woman yeah as queen jousting. venus goddess of love yeah yeah and and going around and and to his benefit he was kicking everybody's ass as a drag queen jouster and but in the meantime he's got his whole a whole family you know and at home that are aware of this whole thing but it's just it's just bizarre how that developed but then again look at our society too so yeah, I don't know. I mean, look, I I understand your point, but even by that standard, this is this is just something else. This is this is like an S and M relationship or something. You know, this guy was like some sort of masochist or something. Well, to and a point, anyway. <laughs> he might have been getting his. Who knows? He might have been getting his jollies from this. Although, from the way the story is told, it was basically he sounds like he was miserable the whole time pretty much with one or two glimmers of hope you know and the very last panel of it um keeping in mind all right this is the same chick that uh, i'm trying to think of the best she didn't like you said she never actually asked him to chop part of his lip off but she didn't really seem to be all that remorseful about it no. Uh, his, his finger, basically, uh, they dropped him out of a, uh, a 
uh, out of one of the towers in the uh, castle. I mean, made them like, like Chris said, uh, made them uh, fight duels of honor dressed in drag. All of this stuff, none, I mean, all those things, didn't violate this guy's principles too much, right? The very last panel, though, it said, but eventually his lady did something so nasty that he wrote her off completely. And I've just, and, and of course, there's no record of what it is. And God, I would love to know. I mean, at that point, you know, you've gone through all of this bullshit. What is the one thing that finally pushed you over the edge? Just drops a lot. Yeah, as a matter of fact, by the time you've gotten that far and you've been that committed to it, why wouldn't you just follow it through to the end? You might as well if you've done all that. It. The most I, I mean, can think of is that she wanted to use a strap-on on him or something. I don't know. Something. To her, to her credit, I mean, from the very beginning, she's like, you can go ahead and try, but ain't nothing going to happen. And then when she finally did a- agree to let him, you know, stay, sleep next to her in the bed, they totally just screwed him over and dropped him out the window. So, I mean, it could have been a situation where she was just like, oh, geez, what do I have to do to get rid of this guy, you know? And maybe she finally thought of something and maybe that she didn't think he would seriously respond to any of this but it seems though that after he cut his lip off she might sort of take it seriously after that right you know that's that's usually when you start taking your stalker seriously when they start taking off body parts now was this the the story that was drawn by Sergio Aragones that you were that you mentioned a while ago, or is this? No, this is a guy who did um, um, what's it called? The Cartoon History of the Universe. Mm. I'm trying to I'm I'm flipping up to the front see if I can uh, real quick find his name. I can never remember his name. I believe he's British. I believe he's done. Oh, Hunt Emerson. Hunt Emerson. Yes. Okay. He's done a he's done a lot of you know british comics there i used to have these comics by him called firkin that were all pretty obscene oh okay not obscene they i mean they were raunchy in that sort of british there's a lot of raunchy british weekly i think viz is the name of the i don't know if they still make them but it was an adult aimed humor comic book and right. pretty salty. Well, I thought he did some great work in that Ulrich von Lichtenstein uh, story. I thought that was um, – I, I just I, – I like that style. I like that sort of cartoony sort of look. It's cartoony, but he puts a lot of detail – there's a lot of good draftsmanship and detail into into the pictures. Right. So it's it reminds me of Peter Bagg a little bit when Peter Bagg was very detailed – where it's that line between realism and cartooniness. Right, right. He puts a nice dimension to... There's a nice dimension to everything. Okay. And my second one is all the way back on page 68. And it was the Cars of Future Past section, which is another bunch of things that were trying to be developed way before their time like flying cars and stuff where we just didn't have the technology to do it practically you could make a working model 
but it would basically be the most ridiculous thing, impractical thing ever. But the reason I picked this was because it had the Dymaxion car in it, Buckminster Fuller's car. And I love Buckminster Fuller. He's one of my heroes. Mm-hmm. But the Dymaxion car was definitely his biggest flop of all time. He was notorious for having a million billion ideas right and really good ideas but they weren't perfected mm-hmm. and i think his plan was to get the ideas out there and then have other people work on them and perfect them but the dimaxion car was something that and he had a dimaxion house too which is a really amazing oh, but wow. i think the dimaxion car he thought that he had it pretty much down and it turned out it was just it's another thing nobody really wanted it <laughs> there was no demand for it it did a few neat maneuvers but otherwise it was almost just sort of like um something you'd make as a curiosity rather than something that was going to become the future of of vehicles especially since it was very maneuverable but Oh, the accidents that people would have gotten into in these things would have been horrifying. That's what really killed it is there was an accident during a demonstration where a car bumped one from behind and just flipped it over, killed the driver of it. Jeez. So, um, yeah, <laughs> not the best idea. Not the Edsel that was actually sort of the new Coke of cars. I almost picked the Edsel as another iconic marketing scheme gone wrong. But I just had to. I, I I had to bring. I had to do the Buckminster Fuller one. I just love Buckminster Fuller. Well, as to the flying car in general, <clears throat> one of the things that kind of reminded me of was um, somebody, apparent. God, I know. I wish I'd saved this YouTube video, but somebody apparently made one, and I don't mean this in like the Jetsons sense of the word, where mm-hmm. you know you had these people zipping around in these really sort of high tech cars. It was basically. It looked like a compact car's little brother, mm-hmm. and it had a sort of – I don't even know what the hell to call it. I mean, it, I don't feel right calling it a parachute exactly, but it had something on it to where it it, it could achieve liftoff once it uh, was going fast enough. And because it was so lightweight, it could actually stay airborne, and it had some kind of means of uh, propulsion. And fucking oddest of all – it actually runs on just regular unleaded gasoline, believe it or not. And so it, it's just – it's one of those things that you know we can debate amongst ourselves the practicality of it. But somebody – and I swear to think the guy's located in Australia or something like that um, – actually developed something. And it's basically just, a, like I said, a really, really, really tiny compact car. And, but he's actually figured out a way to make the damn thing airborne and airworthy. And I think there's only so high you can go whenever you have something that's really not it, – when it, if it's not pressurized, I guess, you, you right, can only go right. so high with it or else you'll just black out. But still, I'm, it's, apparently somebody's out there. Somebody's done it. So I don't know, I don't know what the future of that is, but there you have it. It's, a, it's another thing where there's going to have to be some sort of – before it can be used en masse, they're going to have to figure out where you can fly them safely – how, the country how, is the only thing I can think about. Because how how else yeah. are you going to build up to speed so you can take off? I don't I don't know how else you do it. 
You, you, I mean, you could have, but just the fact that, that that we would have cars flying around in the air, you would have. That means you're going to also have cars dropping out of the sky, at some point, every once in a while. So there's yeah, there's got to be, you know. I mean, they do the same thing with planes. They have them fly over the least populated areas and stuff. But this is gonna if if it's a something that's going to be used by a lot of people. You have to figure out how you're going to air traffic control all those people so they're not crashing into each other and they're not doing stupid, crazy things. And then how you how do you enforce – how do you pull over somebody who's flying like a maniac, you know? Yeah. Do you have, uh, do you have a cop with a you – know? so, I mean, I think the flying car is a long way off unless there's some quantum quantum leap in technology – where there's something completely different keeping them afloat and navigating them and stuff like that. I I think actually it's completely fiction. I don't think we'll ever see a flying car. That's just me. I think it's possible, but if it's going to happen, it's a long way in the future and it's going to be, you know, there's there's going to be some sort of grid that they'll fly on, you know, that won't let them get close to each other and stuff like that. And that they'll be floating on magnetic waves or something like that, so you don't have to worry about them running out of fuel or something. Well, well, I don't know. Maybe you're more long way in the long way off. <laughs> well, I, I think you're a uh, little more optimistic about this than I am. So, okay, but fine. You know, whatever. One of us will eventually be proven right, I, I guess. So, um. Now, was that it for your lightning round, or did you have one that more? Is, nope, that is it for my lightning round. All right. Um, for my lightning round, and this isn't – this is really more, I guess – oh, wow, and this is right after yours. So, wow, yeah, I noticed that. It just uh, – that, that wound up really well. Um, this is on page number 71, women's urinals. Now, partly – what kind of interested me about this was the second panel. I had no idea that people used to do this, but the second panel, it, it shows a, a picture of this chick. She's wearing just sort of period clothing saying, you know, a century or so ago, women like men would oftentimes relieve themselves discreetly in, in, in public, which fucking I had no idea about. Right. And there's a and it's basically if you could picture it in your mind, a picture of a woman standing uh, next to a house or a building or something like that. She's got her legs kind of spread apart. She's pulling her dress away from her ankles. And shall we say there's a pool of water in the gutter. That's maybe about as specific as we need to get with it. And the pitch behind all of this, though, is um, the idea of a woman using some kind of urinal in public bathrooms. And somebody somewhere honestly thought, you know what? This idea has got disco potential. We can do something with this and, and bring it to market, right? And I, as far as I can tell, every single time anybody's ever tried to do something like this, what they eventually run into is the reality that women wear jeans or pants or just whatever. But even when they wear dresses or skirts of some kind, they still wear undies. There's just no way to make this work. Just mm -hmm. from a logistical standpoint, but somehow, and the reason I mention all of this is because not to because this is just such fun 
topic of conversation, but more from the angle that I remember hearing a lot about this sort of thing when I was um, – shit, I guess I was about like nine or ten years old. And I saw some move or a couple of movies, but uh, two in particular uh, movies on uh, HBO stood out. One was from like the 1970s or something, and they had it was just part of a set, right? Uh, they it was just some it, it was a urinal meant for women, which to my nine-year-old mind, you know, it, it's like the light bulb comes on over my head and then it just immediately shorts out. I don't get it. And then there was, uh, not back-to-back, but uh, I want to say it was a couple of weeks or months or, fuck, even years later. Who knows, whenever you're a kid, time passes so weird. It was a much more modern, more recent movie. And again, women's urinals were seen in there. And I'm like, who the fuck wants these? I mean, look, when I was a kid, I, I don't think I was really all that smart. I don't think I had all that good a bullshit filter, but even I could kind of recognize, you know what? There's really no future in this. There's just mm-hmm. no way to make something like this work. And the only thing that I've been able to come up with, literally the only explanation that I've got is that people who operate restaurants and other public places, basically they want to have fairly uniform bathrooms and so they're the useful idiots in this discourse they're the ones that are basically giving the whoever it is that's manufacturing these fucking things giving them false hope all right now the problem here at least as i see it is that you'll always need to have regular toilets on site Mm -hmm. so again the entire idea just seems just kind of pointless and self-defeating as someone who's worked in a bar well, it doesn't. You don't even have to work in a bar. You just have to go to bars. So there's a line for the ladies' room. Uh, there's more. The, the it's more expensive pro- the property in the ladies' room than in the men's room because the men can just walk up to a urinal and piss and walk away. Right. Whereas women have to go into the stall, sit down and pee. So there's and and the toilets take up more space in urinals. You can line the men right up. So I think maybe this was an attempt to try to get just get more knowing that like most people that are using a public restroom are going to piss rather than to take a dump. Right. Although people so you have you have the you could put a couple toilets and instead of having six toilets in the ladies room you could have two toilets and 10 urinals and that would speed things up and make it easier for everybody to get in and get out but like you said i just don't see any way of of making it work because you're gonna have to have you're either gonna have to take your pants or your panties off or you're gonna have to have them just sort of hanging out underneath it in that nether zone of public toilets where nobody wants anything you know right that's going to touch them hanging out. So it's just, it's never going to work. There's just no design that, that can really get past that logistical problem, you know? Right. Well, the only thing I can think of that might overcome that is if literally women's fashion changes so much. Yeah. And we're talking like some pretty fucking substantial changes, right? Well, like panties that just have, well, they have panties that have window, you know, where you could snap out the crotch of them or something like that. 
Well, right, but I meant more from the point of view of having like dresses and stuff, where that's literally all like at least nine yeah. out of ten women wear. Then even then, it's fifty-fifty. Fifty-fifty is the best I could is the best I feel like saying, right? But I mean, I'm all for women wearing dresses and no panties so they can use women's urinals. It ain't gonna happen though. Well, and then, you know, it kind of raises the issue, and now, Jesus, we really are getting off subject here, but, you know, <laughs> since since we're talking about bathroom stuff, um, the city of San Francisco, uh, I want to say it was like a year ago, two years ago, something like that, um, basically there was this big kerfuffle about um, their public nudity laws, right? Because apparently they never had legislation on, about this on the books one way or the other, all right? And so you really couldn't say that somebody was, you know, if they didn't have their clothes on in public, well, it would be hard to charge them with indecent exposure since, as odd as it may seem, they never had a law for that in the first place. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes total sense. And so now, apart from just, to me, public decency, but I guess apart from that, one of the objections that people had was... um, you don't and i'm 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 going to try to put it delicately um you don't want to sit on a public seat that someone before you sat on if they weren't wearing their clothes but let's just put it that way right, right. yes uh, because of chances of infection and who the fuck knows what else bacteria yeah. and so the most strange argument that i've ever seen in public discourse is do people have a legal obligation to cover up that part of their body right and so, anyway, so I'm, and but because of that, because of the concern, you know, and basically, the, I guess you could say the sanitary aspect of it uh, of the debate. Well, I mean, basically, though, I mean, now from a bacteria point of view, I couldn't tell you. I don't know. I'm sure it's it would take just a little research to find out which is more of a den of bacteria the mouth or the asshole this is basically what we're talking about mouth there's people walking around i know the mouth is one of it it, they're number one and two as far as sources of bacteria from your body i just don't know which one's number one and which one's number two but you can walk around with your mouth all over the place now then again if you go around putting your mouth on public seats people are definitely almost not going to want to sit on it but at the same time if they sit on it they usually have a layer in between i i i've been places where there's been lots of nude people and i definitely was aware that it's just like man i don't want somebody's ass rubbing you know not their ass but their anus yeah (laughs) that's that you can seriously get staph infections and things like that yeah who the fuck knows what else yeah or what or just a smelly just pick up a stink (laughs) yeah and and that and to me that was you know one of the things that's basically going to always stand in the way of this sort of thing like the the that's the only reason i have against that i would have against public nudity is is the potential sanitary risks of of it but otherwise i'm i i i'm not opposed i would have no problem with naked people walking around all the way. I think it would be amusing as hell. 
I look at it actually from a different point of view. I mean, number one, people have the right to raise their families however they want. And some somebody basically walking around with no clothes on, I'm sorry, I don't think people ever have the right to do that except in like – private designated areas right that's well that's the way it is yeah that's the way it is now but i mean i think if it was the norm any even the people that had objections to it after a while it's just human nature to be just like oh you know or what you know you stop once you see eight million pairs of genitals you even stop thinking about them as even sort of being there and it just becomes the status quo at first there would be a lot of staring and pointing <laughs> and commenting and averting of eyes well and that's actually something else you know i mean i think that you know most people when you really come right down to it you really don't want to see them without their clothes on you know um i think most people are they're doing the they're doing society a great service of great service by by going outside with their clothes on you know and it's a mixed bag my mileage varies on that because in 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 my experience with masses of nude people there yeah there are a lot of nude people that you really wouldn't choose to see naked but once you see a whole bunch of them after a while it's just like but then again i've seen people put clothes on that have made it worse you know it all depends on how good you are at, at clothing yourself. But I've seen some people that if they were just walking down the road naked, they'd look like every other sort of lumpy naked guy walking down the road. But then, you know, they do some weird thing where they've got, like, the pants that go up over your belly button and some weird in the form-fitting shirt, and then all of a sudden it's the most obscene thing you've <laughs> ever seen. Right. Well... It's just it's one of those things like somebody I guess to be to be a jerk sent me a link and it uh-huh. it was basically a tiny URL which should have been a tip off I guess right there but it was basically naked pictures of Lena Dunham I think or Lena Durham or Lena Dunham I forget which one yeah. it is Yeah and honestly I would have paid good money to go the rest of my Not life to have seen him Huh Not to have seen him Yeah I would have uh-huh. I, I would have paid good money for that and now, I'm, after it was all over, I felt like I had to bleach my eyes and stuff. And, you know, I mean, look, I, I'm sure she's a nice person. I've got nothing, you know, I've got nothing personal. Uh, I find her attractive. I, I would, I, I, I would, I would have sex with her out of principle. Oh, really? Okay. Well, you know, okay, fine. Well, I'll, then let me put it this way. <laughs> she's not to my taste, all right? Now, if you like right, it, right, hey, right. that's totally cool. I got nothing, nothing to say about that. But I'm just saying, not to my taste, right? Oh, yeah. 50% of what I see on Game of Thrones, I don't want to see. <laughs> right. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. And, uh, you know, I guess, and I guess ultimately, well, whatever. Now we are getting off topic. But anyway, so here's the point. Um, I don't see any way to make women's urinals, um, unless fashion, like I said, unless fashion so radically changes. And I mean, like permanently. And I don't know what the odds of that are because women like wearing pants, you know. And so, I guess uh, put a pencil to it, right? But, uh, but it, 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 I guess short of a, a fashion change of that magnitude, basically, there's just no way to ever make this work from so many logistic points of view. Not least of which being modesty. I think a lot of women, 
for whatever reason, there's whenever okay like take high school for example right now i've never been inside a girls locker room so i don't actually know how things go in there but my understanding is that you know in girls locker rooms they have individual showers whereas in men's locker rooms it's just a it, it's just an open shower everyone's in the same one getting hosed down off the same shower heads right see i would have thought it would have been just the opposite i thought it would have been the guys that, that would have gotten the individual showers and the girls that would be more comfortable showering amongst themselves, you know? Well, and I, like, I don't know. I'm just saying that every single uh, guy's locker room that I was ever in, whether it was mm-hmm. you know, oh, yeah. junior high, high school, I never saw individual. Uh, yeah, no, you're totally right. And I, I would, but I don't understand that. I oh. always oh. would think that just from the psychology of guys and girls, you know, I mean, there were, there were guys in my, in, in all through middle school and high school, there were there was always a couple guys in gym class. They were never going to get undressed, you know, never. They they were like, they were, they wore their gym shorts underneath their pants so they could just take their pants off and and do their gym shorts. Or if it was like if we were going swimming, if they the any part where they were naked, they made sure they were off somewhere somewhere else oh geez and and like having having a sister and her friends i always noticed they were they didn't you know they didn't care they'd be in a room like trying on clothes in front of each other and and or or they're always going to the bathroom i don't know but then again i'm judging a lot of this by my modern experience in bars with girls who are if you have girls who are drinking a lot and they have to pee they'll pee anywhere without i've had girls in public just squat and pee right in front of me like outside of our bar oh like geez. up against the dumpster while i was sitting there going you cannot piss there you bet you do not piss there whatever you do and basically every you know every um portageon that was at the festival was either full or locked or they couldn't get to it and Nothing was gonna. Nothing was gonna. You could not stop them. Oh Lord! You could oh. not stop. It, it, they would just be sitting there talking to their friends, pissing. Oh man! <sighs> yeah. Well, you know, I I imagine you're not. You know, this this is like twenty somethings at a beer fest. You know, an open beer fest. I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure you could find. I'm sure you could go to Austin during this, uh, any kind of open, open festival with lots of music, lots of bands, and lots of beer. And as it gets late, if there's not sufficient places to pee, guys can get in and pee. And we're, you, but the guys were doing the same thing. The guys were pissing, and you couldn't stop them either. Everybody was. And jeez, oh, I think the human body just gets to a point where when you gotta go, you gotta go. So you know, even though people might be watching you and it might be embarrassing, you're just like sort of like, well, what am I gonna do? Yeah. <laughs> so I might as well just do it. Yeah, but, I, I but I've noticed that I've noticed that oftentimes the girls aren't shy. So I don't know. So I think if you had a bar where there was gonna be some drinking going on, I think if you'd be able, if there was any way to make it work, I think. The women would be totally down with the urinals, 
but only if, after if, a certain point. Well, yeah, but that point, but you know, when you're drinking, that point comes many times during the night, and how frustrating must it be to just have to wait in line to pee? Sometimes you got to do it with a guy, but it's still it moves along quickly. You know, boom, they're in and they're out, they're in they're out, and there's there's more urinals. So, but I think if there was any way that it was possible, possibly workable, that would that that would have been figured out. 30, 40, 50 years ago. <laughs> well, you know, we actually, since you mention it, one of the things, and I, I only just, I only just remember this, right? But there was a point when I was experimenting with um, online uh, dating, right? And uh, what happened was, I met this chick. I totally had never met her before, but I figured, well, just go out to coffee, right? And just see how things go there. And you know, we're sitting there. Um, uh, talking about, you know, whatever, and eventually, dude, nature calls, right? So I get up, and we're at a Starbucks, right? Get up, go inside, and I go into the um, go into the men's room, and there was a there was a woman in there because apparently someone was in That's the uh, mm-hmm. do what? Because because the, the women's room was full. Yeah, and uh, and she was in there, and dude. She looked at me like I was some kind of a like like a registered sex offender pervert, right? Like for going into the men's room so I could take care of business, right? Like somehow I'm the one with the problem here. Well, she I mean, I've seen in plenty of, I I think there's sort of a tacit rule these days that if the ladies' room gets full that the women are all, are allowed to go into the men's room and go into a stall and but if they do it, they got to be cool. They got to go into the, st- you know, no, like no guys can come in. They can go in the stall and, and use it just like anybody else. And it's, and it's up to the guys to be mature that when they see, you know, stockings and heels that they go, oh, okay, there's a girl in here or right, whatever. It's not my but, fucking responsibility to leave just because some oh, girl's no. in there. Oh no, it's her responsibility to, it's her responsibility to fucking lighten up and, and be and not be shocked that a man man walked into the men's room. Right, and that's not uh, what maybe you... she would. Maybe she had a fr- maybe she got let down. Maybe she had a friend who was supposed to guard the door and be like, "There's a girl in there." Well, but, I, look, I'm sorry, that wouldn't stop me. All right, bitch. You know, no, this... no, no. But but it would at least absolve her friend of trying. I but guess. you know, her friend was like, "Screw that! I'm going to go back to the bar." And so maybe she was expecting that nobody, you know, there was nobody coming in. But yeah, no, no, she has nothing, nothing to say. She's in, she's in the, the one in alien territory. Right, and that was kind of my reference point. But tell that to her. Anyway, she was like, she looked to be. Um, I, well, let me think. I was probably like 25 at the time. She looked to be about 21. Around there, and I've noticed that there's a strange bullshit sense of entitlement that women that age seem to have. That yeah, uh, the world doesn't just revolve around women; it revolves around her, and it doesn't just revolve around her; it revolves specifically around her pussy. And dude, I I'm call th- that the "This is my favorite song" um, phase with girls. That that when they're in that phase, they have this predisposition to when the song they like comes on, they go. This is my favorite song, and they and they expect sort of everything to just sort of stop right there to acknowledge 
Oh, to pay homage to their favorite. The greatest. Yeah. yeah, And the volume go up. Everybody shut up and listen. Oh, yeah. It's my favorite song. And guess what? They're playing. The universe is playing my favorite song right now. And I'm telling you all to know it's a I I just I've worked at a lot of bars. Yeah. It's an entitlement. They get it. They you know, they it's. When you're that young, you're dumb. You don't have the experience. And when you're when you're twenty a twenty year old girl, twenty one year old girl who's really pretty and has been generally probably, I mean, usually when they act like that, that means to that point they've been just treated special because they're a pretty girl. They probably have a a real protective dad at home and princess thing going on, but. Yeah, they'll eventually get into the real world, and you know, and then they'll, and then they'll eventually they'll be like 28 years old, and then the 21 year old girls will steal all their thunder, and they'll have to develop a, some sort of personality. Same with the jockey, dumb jockey guys, you know. Well, actually, I don't know if I agree with that. I th- I don't know that there's any hope for them, but. <laughs> <sighs> All right. Well, that's uh, basically what I've got. So um, was there anything else that you had for this? No, I mean, there's a lot of great stories in this. But, I mean, once again, you can't – I don't want you editing a six-hour podcast. Um, The only thing I could say is I highly recommend reading it. I mean, literally every – there's 200 pages to it, and each story is usually about a page or two long. So there's just uh, over a hundred different stories. And some of them, a good chunk of them, are a collection of things. So they're like different patents and stuff. So it's just filled with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of loser tidbits. <laughs> but it's not as depressing as you... It's not depressing at all. It's a very light kind of comedic read, actually. It it, it doesn't make you feel bad at the end of it, which is good. Right. So what do we have left for big books? Um, I'm all, I'm, I've run through all my, my physical editions. I'm going to be back to reading virtual editions. Uh, well, I know that you would never do that. But yeah, I can appreciate the, uh, the metaphor that you're using there. But I know that you would never, ever, ever oh, think about... No. Yeah. Um, no, the... Uh, let's see. We've actually got uh, quite a few, actually. Um... Let's see. We've done urban legends. We've done conspiracies. We've done hoaxes. We just did losers. So there's weirdos, death, freaks, little <laughs> criminals, hoaxes. Well, sorry, no, not hoaxes. Uh, thugs, um, martyrs. Which I don't. I think we've both agreed we're probably not ever going to cover that one. It's I just too. Do what? The, yeah, that was the one that was basically really dry. Well, that, but it's also so specifically uh, uh, a Christian that I don't know what the uh, spiritual breakdown is for at least my audience, but I don't know. I'm not sure that's the right move for us. It's not that I have anything against the subject matter. It's just that I don't know if it's appropriate for what I'm for what I want the show to be. And so um, but the one I've been reading is um, the big book of the 70s. Uh, just, you know, while I was gearing up for this episode, I mean, I finished, let me think, I finished uh, Losers, I want to say it was about a week and a half ago or something like that. 
And so what I've been reading since then, just kind of for fun, was actually the final book in the big book series, which was um, the 70s. And uh, so I'm not saying that we have to do that one next, but that's just the one that I've been doing. So if you'd like that to That sounds like a lot of fun. Right. Well, and actually the reason I was I was going to insist on a co-host definitely for that one. And obviously, you know, it's going to kind of be you. But but even if you'd said that you didn't want to do that, I mean, I – I really wasn't a shit. I wasn't even born until October of 1980. I lived through the whole 70s, baby. Yeah, and so you're gonna have an angle on this, especially since I think the majority of the big book of the 70s relates to stuff from about 1975 to 1979. And, and that's I think when I first started becoming aware of any kind of culture at all. So right, and I thought that was a little bit more inside your wheelhouse than maybe mine. So. Now some of this stuff, well, actually, you know, I'll say I'll save the commentary for when we actually do the thing. But does that sound good then? The seventies? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, all right, that's cool. All right, well then, I guess that's pretty much it for this time. So, Chris, why don't you tell everybody where they can find you? You can find me all over the place on twotruefreaks.com, and uh, of course, if you search for Two True Freaks on uh, iTunes, you'll find a whole plethora of podcasts some of which have me. So I'm in all the monthly Mondays, Star Trek monthly Monday, Star Wars monthly Monday, comics monthly Monday, and um, commentary monthly Monday. And I'm also in Walking Dead Wednesday and the Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror, the Media Masochist once in a while. When's the next uh, one on that, by the way? Ah, jeez. I'm so behind on it. There's so many things to do i think the next project i have to do with the media masochist was a movie it was uh it was an end of the world movie i think that i was going to do with uh luke jacanetti oh um was the next in line uh, there i have potentially hundreds <laughs> of horrible there's been horrible movie horrible grindhouse movies and of all kinds and all different exploitation movies being dumped onto YouTube like crazy. There's so much media masochist potential. And I have to catch up on my garage sale gloat too. And I'm working on episode. We're, we're, we're just about to hit episode 400 of two true freaks. Badass. And, uh, and that means soon I have to prepare episode 420, Chris versus Drugs, which is going to be epic. <laughs> I should have brought it up during our smokeless cigarette conversation, but oh, all right, cigarettes and caffeine will be brought up in that. They'll be, they'll have their own sections in that one, I'm sure. Uh, do you, what do you have in mind for episode 400? Probably nothing. It'll probably be. It will probably be Walking Dead. It, no, it'll probably be Comics Monthly Monday this this month. Um, oh, so you're not going to set aside episode 400 I, to. I don't think we're going to do that again till episode 500. Oh. I think episode 500 will. We just. It just seems like we'll have to do some sort of some sort of big episode but the problem was episode 100 was a was we put a lot of work into episode 100 but episode 200 we decided we had to beat episode 100 
and it almost killed us both. <laughs> wow. We put so much work into that, and we dug up all our you know, promos and weird little bits that we did, which most of the time we hadn't preserved as their own thing, so we had to find old episodes and cut them out of there. And, and yeah, we had this whole editing process where we were each editing 20 minutes at a time, and we were passing it back and forth, and it we really put a lot of a lot of work into it so the next time we do some sort of episode like that yeah we want to have a lot of time to prepare for it so we can actually do it and 400 there's just no way i'm actually working a real job now which i actually kind of feel ashamed of sometimes because i don't really need to do it um but i'm enjoying the hell out of it but I'm going to be working 50 hours this week. Damn. So I sort of, I sort of am missing, and I will once again, I will have the days again where it's like, all right, I won't do eBay for three days, and I'll just work on podcasts. It's a wonderful luxury, and if you can get it without having to be, like, unemployed. <laughs> right. You know? Right. Then you should get at it, but... All right. Well, either I'm saying is I have a week for episode 408. Nothing happening in that <laughs> time. All right. All right. All right. Well, either way, thanks uh, again. I always appreciate you know you taking the time to join and also just you know hanging out and shooting the shit. You know, it's always a lot of fun. So thanks for joining me. Oh, it's always a riot. I and um, I'm looking forward to. It. I haven't heard it pretty soon. Shouldn't uh, the last one we did? Isn't that on the... Um, something's fairly soon? Yeah, we're going to peel back the curtain a little bit here, but that's fine. Um, that is coming out. That's hoaxes. That's coming out on... Um, let's see, the 20... So, in exactly one week. Now, I got to tell you, we didn't have a chance to talk about it before. I am so fucking excited about this because I... It, I don't want to make it sound like I, I just poured hours and hours and hours of work into this I didn't but I think the end result turned out so well I'm so proud of this just on a technical level well that's what I'm I'm interested because it was a really good conversation and all the while I was like I'm gonna be very interested to see how, how this how the, how he how he edits this you know and how it, how it comes out so I'm I'm really eager to listen to it. Well, and I think it's going to be worth your while. So it's, yeah, this one is um, three hours, 21 minutes, and five seconds. Wow. And yeah. that's actually to the point where I'm, I'm not quite there, but I'm starting to come close to bumping up to the uh, to the file transfer limit. Not quite there, but that I think this may be the longest thing I've ever... It's like a Scorsese movie or a Peter Jackson movie. Yeah. So, it just again, I'm really proud of it. Uh, just from a production value point of view, I think it turned out extremely well. And uh, I just hope people respond to it favorably because, again, it's not so much that blood, sweat, and tears went into this. It's just there was a lot of inspiration. And, you know, so anyway, but that's that. So that's next week. So I think that kind of gives away when we're recording this so that's how far ahead i tend to go people so um but anyway so but again thanks chris appreciate you taking the time to join in and i also appreciate everyone taking the time to listen and i'll talk to you all next week bye
I prowl the rooftops and alleyways at night, searching for justice. Blind justice. A guardian devil. (coughs) No, 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 that's not actually true. I'm not Daredevil, blind attorney by day and fearless crime fighter by night. No, I am J. David Weeder, a podcaster, but you can call me Dave. I do read about Daredevil and his adventures, and I podcast about it on my show, Dave's Daredevil Podcast. You see, it's it's my Daredevil... You get it, you get it. Every Sunday, I read a Daredevil comic and share my thoughts and feelings on the issue, the characters, and the world of Marvel's Man Without Fear in an easily accessible audio form. And I want to take you along for the ride, so tune in each week as we meet Daredevil, his villains, his loves, and more hornhead goodness than you can shake a billy club at. That is every Sunday on iTunes and at www.daredevilpodcast.com. That is daredevilpodcast.com. Take the dare. Listen to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Did I really just say take the dare? Wow, I'm really glad I decided to pony up and take my wife to Italy for her birthday. The food, the sights, the atmosphere, it's all just so perfect. (sighs) Too bad I had to ask if there was a comic book shop located at the Vatican. Uh, Maybe it wasn't the brightest thing to do on her birthday, but... Granted, I'm certain I've done things way more foolish than that. Good afternoon. Gah! Where did you come from, and who the heck are you? My name is Dufo Manzo, and where I come from is none of your concern. What is of your concern is that I have an offer to make of you. An offer that you should not refuse. Uh, okay. What is it? I have listened to your podcast. And it just so happens that I am in the podcasting business myself. Someday I will ask a favor of you, one that I hope you will repay to me in good faith. When you do so, you will become a part of my family, and your show will prosper along with it. Oh, that sounds great. What do I need to do? You will know when the time is right. Until then, I wish you and your lovely wife the happiest of times in my fair country. Oh, okay. Cool. Some time has passed. And that does it for another episode of Just One of the Guys. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and I'll catch you all next week. Bravo. Bravo. God! How how the hell did you find me, and how did you get in my house? Do not worry yourself with such trivial matters. I have seen your work with this podcast, and I have come to accept the favor that is owed to me. Uh, but you never said what you wanted from me. That is true, so let me restate it now. Wait, what? I have started up a brand new podcasting venture entitled Two True Freaks. I am setting them up with their own website, twotruefreaks.com, and I am gathering up podcasts such as yours that have gained my favor to become a part of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. I will do the honor of putting the Just One of the Guys on the Two True Freaks Network, and in return, our debt will be settled. Oh, okay. Hey, wait, what debt? Do you accept my offer? Uh, sure. I mean, does this mean I'll get paid for the show, finally? No. Oh, okay. Well, does it mean that I'll get some cannoli? Of course. The DiManzo family originated cannoli. In fact, we are known the world over for our stuffing of creamy fillings in the tubes. Come check out Just One of the Guys every Friday at twotruefreaks.com.
Why do you think superheroes are so important? People need heroes because they need somebody to inspire them, something to aim for, somebody to try to be like. One is the man of tomorrow, with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. The other, the caped crusader carrying out a solemn vow to spend his life warring on all criminals. For seven decades, they've been the world's finest heroes. They've teamed on radio, comics, newspapers, animation, and more. And now, they're teaming up for a podcast. To the Batmobile, let's go. Up, up, and away! Atomic Superman and Batman celebrates more than 70 years of the world's finest team with randomly chosen stories featuring the Man of Steel and the Dark Knight. Superman and Batman, featuring your two favorite heroes in one podcast together. Find it today at greatcrypton.com. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus punches reality there you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when i've put them up you can friend me on facebook by searching for trentus magnus which is spelled t-r-e-n-t-u-s-s-m-a-g-n-u-s-s you can email me and my parole officer at trentus magnus at gmail.com which is spelled T-R. E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, Please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2TrueFreaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the 2TrueFreaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, 
why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promo section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy. <laughs>